folks. Welcome back to Playing Crazy Down Under, the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. We're standing here at Natfly here at beautiful Tamora in New South Wales. With me as always is Grant McHeron. G'day, mate. Hey, mate. How you going? I'm doing very well, mate. It's been an exhausting weekend. We've had a great time. Yeah, definitely. It's been uh, pretty awesome. We've got some altitude. Got yep. some interviews. Absolutely. Uh, got some sun and some uh, met some great people. Yep. From Aviation Appetizer, Ben Morgan. How are you, Ben? Not too bad. Busy weekend, mate? Yeah, it's been fantastic. It's, it's fun standing behind a microphone, isn't it, mate? It's terrible. <laughs> Absolutely terrible. <laughs> well, someone who's no stranger to standing behind one of our mics is Baz Sheffers, all the way from South Australia. How are you, mate? Oh, yes. Got a 4.7 in the logbook on the way over here. Yeah. It's been fantastic. Nice to see the sporty back in the air, mate. Oh, <laughs> finally. <laughs> yeah. Finally. <laughs> But it's been worth it. It's flying fantastically. I'm, uh, you know, enjoying being back up there. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Ben, you probably know more about Natfly than uh, than us from previous experience. Tell us, what's the purpose of this event? I think the purpose of Natfly is really to bring together um, not only the pilots and aircraft owners of the recreational aviation space, but also all of the businesses, uh, the dynamic lineup of aircraft manufacturers, engine manufacturers, uh, avionics and instrument manufacturers, uh, and also. I guess some of the fringe uh, elements as well, like us, uh, advertisers for aircraft classified services and news products. So a real melting pot, an opportunity for these people to all come together to celebrate what is really now the fastest growing segment of aviation in Australia. I've been amazed here and of course as our listeners know I, I spent a lot of time away from aviation but before that I was in GA but coming here now and I often talk about the level of technology in these 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 LSA RALs aircraft just amazing and uh, you know it's some of the aircraft we've seen here today are very very modern and very very high tech. Well we speak of high tech but right at this moment we have this beautiful yeah. uh, old biplane which is probably not old probably built not that long ago but yeah, an old design. Uh, yeah a stunning example of one of the types of products that we're seeing here uh, the Rotec radial engine, you know, uh, modern materials, modern machining practices uh, meets, I guess, 1930s classic aviation. Well, coming up on this show, folks, we've recorded a lot of content through the two days that we've been here. We'll be talking to such people as Owen Zup, who's been down here doing some air tests. He's going to actually tell us how he does air tests and what sort of criteria he does. We've been talking to uh, people from Brumby Aircraft. Who else have we been talking to? Oh, we've been talking to Rotec, Rotax, uh, both engine manufacturers. We've had a quick chat with Aeroshoot. We've recorded interviews with uh, a gentleman who flies the gyrocopters, who was uh, polite enough to also throw my ass in the plane and take me up early this morning, which was absolutely wonderful. We've also had a quick chat with uh, guys from Leisure, who to uh, bring out the Paradise One. Uh, had a quick chat with a gentleman whose father has modified a Jabiru to uh, the 230 to uh, allow for uh, entry and exit of large loads via clamshell doors and the bum. Go figure. It's quite an amazing modification I'm looking at right now. But we've had quite a lot of other uh, interviews. We'll try and squeeze them all in. It could make for a long episode, but I think it's going to be worth it because there's a lot of great content here from the RAGA kind of world. Absolutely. So we'll jump into those interviews now. It's a uh, pre-recorded package of uh, interviews that we've done over the last couple of days. It should give you a really good feel for uh, what it's like to be here at uh, Natfly here at Tomorrow 2011. Okay, we're here with Paul Goad from Brumby Aircraft. Uh, Paul, welcome. Thanks for having me here today. Well, it's a great day here at Tomorrow, mate, and uh, we're set up in front of some of your magnificent aircraft, so uh, we're going to have a bit of a chat about uh, Brumby Aircraft and uh, how it was all set up and what sort of products you're offering these days. Certainly. So uh, let's let's start off, uh, Paul, if you can tell us, what's your background in aviation, mate? Uh, the background was uh, aviation manufacture and component overhaul mm-hmm. uh, in Bankstown Airport several years ago. My father's company uh, had a company called Go Air Products where they basically did most things for GA aircraft. Yep. Uh, and it came from there where he, he sat down and designed an aircraft in the factory there and 
got it into production. Uh, and as it came into production around about 2004, the new light sport aircraft category came out, which was a self-certification process enabling us to do it now in our factory without the uh, overseeing body of the Civil Aviation Safety Authority. So you've been in aviation all your life. You grew up with it around your dad. Yes, absolutely. Uh, done much flying of your own? What kind of licences you got? Yeah, I've, uh, only private pilot licence. I do uh, do fly a lot of the warbirds actually here at Tamora, uh, including the uh, the Ryan, the Wirraway, uh, oh, yeah. the Grumman Avenger. Uh, and I fly most of the aerobatic aircraft, uh, the extra 300 and the Edge 540. Let's have a chat then about uh, Brumby. You mentioned uh, it was your dad set it up down in uh, in Bankstown. What was the impetus to actually create your own aircraft? I mean, there's not like there's no aircraft out there. Why start your own one? Uh, yeah, well, it just sort of came along with that category. So we, we already had a he already had a design in his head what he wanted, and he, once he put it to paper, we were able to, to make he was able to make the aircraft reasonably quickly okay. in about six months. So uh, from there, we put it out into the market and we sold 10 aircraft in around about 10 weeks. So uh, we then had to go into production and had, had no choice but to, to go into production with the aircraft. Okay, and was that the first Brumby? That was the first Brumby low wing. Uh, and so now we're up to serial number 24. Uh, and we've taken five years to do it. So it's now a, it's a fully certified aircraft in the light sport aircraft category. Uh, we've got several kits out. Uh, we've bought some, some late model machinery. We have a very capable workshop. Uh, in the last uh, six months, we've designed the high wing, which we have here today, our, our first uh, prototype. Okay, and uh, what was the impetus behind designing a high wing? You've got a great low wing aircraft. Everyone's really enjoying that. It's uh, looking like a great trainer. So why go for a – what was the need for a high wing? Uh, the need for a high wing is that there's a couple of different reasons. The high wing is very easy to get in and out of for an elderly person or a person with arthritis. Uh, we're also able to, to get disabled people in there, uh, people in a wheelchair that can't quite get into the low wing aircraft. And some people just like high wings to keep the sun out of them. So for the hotter climates like Queensland, uh, there's also different different range. We've got uh, we'll be able to target hopefully power line spotting and and different stuff that that uh, we can't target in the low wing. We can also fly with the doors off for filming, uh, and uh, it's a very manoeuvrable aircraft, so it makes it very versatile. But otherwise, it's pretty much the same as the low wing, but just redesigned with the high wing aspect. Or yeah, definitely very very similar to the low wing. Same, a lot of the same parts interchange. So uh, we've tried to keep that uh, for ease of manufacturing, and most of the componentry is interchangeable with the low wing. Uh, you're running uh, Rotex engines in these aircraft. Can you tell us a bit about which uh, type you're using? What sort of uh, power output? They sure, have? we run the the standard engine of the Rotex, 100 horsepower, uh, and we're now going to be the first Australian manufacturers to offer the new Lycoming O233 engine, which is designed by Lycoming in America. Uh, and we have uh, two of those engines due in next week, and that will then become our factory-approved engine for our, our light sport aircraft. Okay, so you're going to offer both the Rotax and... We will offer both. We'll offer the Rotax and the Lycoming, but the Lycoming will be our, our engine choice. Okay. So that'll be the, uh, the O233? That's it. It's an O233, 116 horsepower, uh, and a 2400-hour TBO, so uh, plenty of time for the flying schools to get through. Now, you're fully certified as an LSA in Australia and therefore worldwide because it's the yep. same standards. How many hoops did that involve? What sort of effort was required? Uh, it's, a, it's a large effort and it's, it's always an ongoing effort, improving and, and refining the aircraft and its techniques. So the, the paperwork and the, the man hours is huge uh, to where we've got the lowing now where we're not going to change it anymore. It's, it's exactly what we want and it does exactly what we want. The high wing, we've still got, uh, we've got a long way to go now to refine it, which hopefully we'll have by the end of the year. Uh, a very refined and, and neat-looking aircraft, locally made, of course. <laughs> Best kind. Yeah, and where do you, where are you sort of pitching your sales? Are you, are you getting much interest from overseas or predominantly we haven't, Australia? We haven't focused on overseas. We want to get the production right here and the time frames right so we can get the aircraft out in a reasonable time frame. Once we get that, uh, we will then look to go overseas. 
Are you getting much many nibbles from local uh, LSA flight schools? Yeah, we are, and we've only just started marketing ourselves, so we're just starting to use an aviation advertiser, mm-hmm. uh, and they're helping us with our marketing. So uh, we're certainly targeting the flying schools, which is what we set the aircraft up for initially. I take it you've got a pretty rugged design there in the landing gear if you're designing f- not just for the casual flyer, but for people who are just learning. I know. Yeah, it's definitely made to, uh, to take a pounding, and we've targeted it that way. We've tested it that way. Yeah. And, and to this date, it's working quite well for us. Okay. One of the uh, interesting things I found with uh, this, this category of aircraft is the level of technology in the cockpit. Could you take us through the uh, avionics suite that you've got in the aircraft? Certainly. The, the Brumby range offers some of the latest technologies where we have uh, one over here that actually has, has the full radar altimeter. It has uh, a 10-inch flat screen in it, autopilot, uh, ballistic parachutes. Uh, it's basically got everything in it that a uh, 747 has, almost. <laughs> nice. That's a lot of gear. But very, very, very late model technology. The technology that comes out now, as you know, uh, it changes every month. Uh, and we have been able to fit some of the latest technology into our aircraft. How, how have you gone about setting it up so that, as you said, technology changes all the time? Uh, what upgrade paths are available? Is it software upgradable, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's mainly software upgrades and we employ younger people to show us how to use it. <laughs> Excellent. Now, um, just looking at your aircraft there, they're all metal. They're not composite and so on, which seems interesting because many aircraft these days are coming out as composite. Why did you choose metal? Look, the metal's good for Australia, and it's good for the for the reason that a lot of aircraft uh, owners, including flying schools, don't have the facility of hangars. They're getting expensive. Airports are getting expensive. So we've made an all-metal aircraft that can be just tied down outside, same as the old Cessna series aircraft that are still around after 50, 60 yeah. years. Okay, that's a very good idea. Is it is it also like easy to fabricate and uh, more robust or things like that? Or uh, it is. The composites are, are a problem to repair for some people here in Australia. The metal, of course, on, on our aircraft is all cut under a CNC machine, so the spare parts or the the backup service is excellent. We can recreate the part, uh, and as they're all drawn up on the computer, uh, the parts are, are very easy to duplicate again. Okay, and. Uh with respect to the, the maintenance and things like that, how are you finding they're going in the field? How, you know, nothing quite like uh, getting an aircraft into reality. Yeah, look, the, the maintenance, the airframes are holding up great. The engines, the Rotaxes are a reasonably bulletproof engine. They seem to be going well. Uh, and at this stage, Touchwood, we've had no major problems. And we've had some uh, certainly some, some customers test out some heavy landings and uh, off-runway incidents, and the aircraft have stood up remarkably well. What's it rated to in terms of load capacity, carrying and all that? Look, it's a 600 kilo limit, the light sport aircraft, so we can carry 600 all up weight. So uh, the the aircraft comes in around about 350 kilos. So uh, you've got about 250 payload. So you've got, uh, you know, you've got well over four and a half hours endurance and two two big guys at around uh, 85 to 90 kilos. In terms of airframe stress, uh, like what what kind of stresses have you put it through? Uh, It's a standard stress that goes through on a a Cessna or a a Piper or a Cherokee Beechcraft. So it's a plus 3.8 and minus uh, 1.5. Okay, if some, so somebody's decided they want to go ahead and buy a Brumby, what are their options? How, how do they go about doing that? Is it What, what options do they have? Look, the options are, are fairly good. We offer everything from custom paint. We do it all in-house, so we have an aircraft spray painting facility. We can have custom paint right through to airbrushing to, uh, to metallic paints, leather interior right through to tinted canopies, uh, basically glass cockpits, autopilots. Uh, whatever you want, we can accommodate. It's, it's not just a little aircraft. It's got everything. Yeah, it, it does have everything in it iPod. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> you can listen to your uh, podcast. Yeah, you can listen to Playing Crazy Down Under. That's awesome. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> o- en route. <laughs> and to, how's, how's the lead time for picking up a Brumby if I decide I want to buy one now? Uh, the lead time's now around about four months. 
And uh, whereabouts are you based? Where are you producing them? Is it in Bankstown still? No, we're manufacturing the aircraft in Cowra, New South Wales, which is not far from where we are today. Well, that's interesting. And it's one of the good things to see is um, you know, local manufacturing and local industry. So how many people are you employing out there at Cowra? Uh, at the moment, we've got a team of 12. And, and what's the future hold in terms of uh, expanding that? Where, where is Brumby going? Uh, look, we'd like, to, we'd like to turn over two to three aircraft a month, which is a, a fairly big call for us. We're only a small family company. Uh, we don't have any shareholders or investors, so uh, we take it slow and steady, but uh, we will get there. And uh, with our new range, the high wing coming out, we'll refine production, and uh, we look to then hopefully get two to three aircraft out a month. So you, you've funded this with your, your family money. You haven't gone and picked up investors and shareholders and so on? Yeah, that's right. That's why it's been reasonably difficult for us because we, uh, we have, have been slow at getting the aircraft out. But at the end of the day, we've also uh, kept our heads uh, above water. Uh, through all the GFC and uh, and we'll continue to do so. Yeah, and you're able to set the direction that yourself, you don't have to dance the tune of the investors and No, that's right. Yeah, we don't want to, bad enough to answer to the bank manager, so we don't want to have to uh, answer to anyone else. Yeah, very true. So, uh, Paul, we can find you on the web at uh, brumbyaircraft.com.au. Have you got a phone number we can contact you? Absolutely, Aaron. So, no, 2634116365 and uh, the website's got uh, everything you need to know. So, Paul, uh, we're down here at uh, tomorrow. We're part of NetFly. We're sitting in the hangar looking at some aircraft. Uh, uh, have you got any specials going for the NetFly attendees? Any X demos, things like that? Yeah, look, we've got uh, a brand new one there that uh, we were doing for 120,000. We've just knocked uh, 5,000 off our retail price, so we're uh, we're giving them away today for 130,000 fly away for our low wing, or 108,000 fly away for the high wing. So once again, www.brumbyaircraft.com.au, and uh, in Australia, of course, zero two six three four one one six three five. Paul, thanks very much for joining us here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Laurie, mate, we're standing here next to this helicopter and all I can think is, honey, I shrunk the hues. This is just like looking at a small 500. What exactly is this helicopter? This is built by Revolution Helicopters in the in Missouri, in the States. Uh, it is built under the, as you can see, that's the, under the same uh, uh, metrics as, 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 the, as the Hughes 500. Yep. Needless to say, of course... Uh, Revolution Helicopters is called it the Mini 500. It, it's physically looking exactly like an early Hughes 500 model, but uh, it's only got one seat. Uh, well, yeah, it was, was built for a particular market. Uh, there was over 400, uh, 500 of these, rather, um, came out of the factory. They come out of the factory in kit form. Um, so we assemble them uh, under the under the the rule 51. That is oh, 51% rule. 51% yeah. rule. Um, so uh, and um, there, like I say, there was over 500 of them come out of the factory. There's 13 of these in Australia, and uh, I've actually owned seven of the 13, <laughs> and two of those seven I've owned twice. So um, you really like them. Uh, from been playing around these for now for 12 odd years, so I'm probably regarded as the guru of Mini 500s in Australia. So, so what kind of, what kind of engine have we got on board this? Um, this one's fitted with a I fitted a, a Rotex 618 90 horsepower uh, in preference to the original motor, which was a 582 67 horsepower. And we found that the 67 horsepower was just on borderline, yeah, and we're run. getting tremendous results from the um, from the, uh, the 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 618 90 horsepower. Nice. Yeah. So, um, well, how much fuel do you take, and how long does that give you? 
Uh, it's got a duration. It's got 56 litres and it's burning 16 and a half litres an hour. So it's giving us a duration of just around about three hours in ideal conditions. A bit under, maybe a little under, little under three hours duration. Okay. And if we were to equate that to distance, we've got 475 kilometres. Okay, yeah. that's not bad. Yeah. That's uh, normally longer than you can go before you need to uh, hop down and uh, unload yourself. Um, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately with this, of course, we can't carry the little, uh, the, little <laughs> the little bottle from behind the seat like we do in the fixed wing. Yeah, it's so, a little hard to... Uh, there's not much room to manoeuvre in this, yeah, and you've got both right. hands very firmly on the controls. You're right, yeah. yes, yes. Okay, so um, what kind of... I'm just having a look at the instrumentation panel there. You've, you've got pretty much standard standard equipment for a small helicopter. Anything specific about the kit out in this one? Um, no, this is exactly as they come in the kit. Okay. Uh, I have added uh, a couple of features. Uh, this has got a, a governor control, a throttle governor control, which they don't normally have. So that's one more feature that, or one more performance that uh, you don't have to do when you're flying. You can set the throttle at 100%, throttle and rotor at 100%, switch the uh, the governor control on and it looks after that feature so it's very handy yeah yeah one less thing to hassle about if you're going absolutely. for a long long trip absolutely yeah. Yeah. so how does she handle well I can only compare it with with the, with the mini 500 with the with the Robinson 22 and I I've not flown a Robinson 22 however guys that have flown this are proficient uh, Robinson 22 mustering pilots and um, oh they love this machine yeah yeah looks very zippy and sporty yeah uh, it is a lot it is a lot more mellow in 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 control than the than the Robinson 22 uh, there's some features with this that uh, the Robinson 22 doesn't have and that is one fact is that the uh, has greater inertia on the blades because of the the weight it's got a pound of lead or 2.2 of kilogram on each uh, blade tip the other thing is the blades on this machine are an eight inch cord whereas they're only a seven and a half inch cord blade on a robinson look horses for courses but certainly they're a safe fun little machine they can be used a lot of fun in, in recreational flying, but they're very reliable and very usable and property for property use. Yeah, because so. I mean, recreational flying, you're often wanting to take someone with you, although, you know, there's a day that you just want to go fly yourself, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I can see this would really work well when you're wanting to go out and check the lines, check the, check the muster and all that. Well, the other advantage, of course, with this machine, it's built under Rule 51, which means that uh, if it's on property, of course, you can do your own maintenance, legally do your own maintenance. Uh, in fact, you can completely rebuild the aircraft and do it legally. Yep. So And so you don't need to re- the, the services of a Lamy 2 uh, aircraft mechanic to, uh, to do your servicing. So even though it's VH registered? That's correct, yes, okay. yes. Interesting. Anything else you'd like to say about the uh, Mini 500? Look, they're, they're going to be around for a long time. They're, they're a very reliable, safe little machine. They're a great-looking little machine. Uh, and price-wise, I've got this, this for sale at a very, very competitive price of $45,000. So if there's anybody out there that's looking for a great little machine that's economical and they will get great service from me, I have all the spare parts available and all the servicing and advice that they would ever need to keep the machine going. And how would they contact you about that? They can contact me on 0408 124 350.
Excellent. Thank you for your time. <laughs> no worries. Thank you, mate. That's great. Well, we're here at uh, tomorrow with John Gordon from uh, Leisure Sport Aircraft, who are the agents for the Paradise Aircraft out of Brazil. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me here. Cool. Now, uh, John, let's start by just talking a little bit about yourself. Uh, what got you into aviation, mate? I think like uh, most people that are born with that defective aviation gene that uh, will end up costing you a lot of money over your lifetime. Yes. Um, my first flight in a glider, I got hooked, and then uh, I've been flying gliders, um, GA aircraft, now recreational aircraft, and I've sort of, over the years now, I've become a uh, flight instructor, a CFI, and a pilot examiner, and uh, enjoy teaching people and uh, actually passing on those skills to, to other folk. Okay, so you got quite a bit of flying experience there. About how many hours do you reckon you got? Uh, a few thousand. What got you into um, setting up Leisure Sport Aircraft? Well, I've been using a number of aircraft and uh, uh, over the years in my school I've been running a flight training facility in Ballina, Northern New South Wales and I uh, kept looking for an aircraft that actually fit the bill uh, more so than the ones that were available at the time. And a lot of the aircraft out there are very fine aircraft but they're not built to last like the old, like the old Cessnas and Pipers at 20, 30, 40 years and they're still being used. A lot of the recreational aircraft these days uh, really aren't designed for the training market. So I was looking for something that would actually last the, the longevity of a little bit of mishandling by students. As a student myself, I can attest to that, having uh, mishandled the odd aircraft on landing. Uh, so you were, you were going out there looking for something pretty solid and, and you yes. found that in the paradise. Yes, and uh, in Brazil, it took me a journey to Brazil. I was doing a lot of research around the place. There were a lot of composite aircraft. There were a lot of uh, aircraft made out of aluminium and yeah, there's even wooden aircraft out there these days. So, so it's a great market. There's a lot of uh, products out there. It's simply a matter of finding one that was really suited the Australian conditions. And Brazil actually has a very similar environment to Australia where they have a very large country, about the size of Australia, 180 million people, but lots of jungle and a lot of open spaces. And uh, the aircraft is designed with long-range fuel tanks and, again, uh, cover long distances uh, very quickly. Okay, so let's let's chat about the aircraft. It's a high-wing two-seat aircraft. What can you tell us about it? Okay, it's a high-wing two-seater aircraft. Uh, externally, um, it looks about the size of a Cessna 150, and uh, again, uh, about the same amount of space, actually more space inside than a Cessna 150. Externally, it looks also very similar to a Technam, but it's that's really where the... Uh, similarities end you're looking at skin skin deep if you actually take the skin off a paradise uh, it's a full chrome molly fuselage a bit like the old piper cub it's chrome molly from uh, nose to tail and then they cover it with an aluminium skin and uh, built very rigid very strong and i would expect a lifetime of 20 to 30 years out of this airplane and what kind of engine do you have up front it's a rotex 912 uh, uh, well virtually a bulletproof uh, engine these days I think in the uh, recreational field uh, they're, they're an engine that have proven themselves and uh, you know will always get you through the TBO these days and a, a, a nice engine to be flying behind. So given it's uh, in the LSA category what kind of uh, capacity has it got within that 650 limit? Okay basically it's uh, empty weight of the aircraft is uh, 370 kilograms so you can get two full-size people in full fuel and some luggage and um, travel the distance. And the, the great thing about the Paradise, it's probably got one of the largest 
baggage areas of any aircraft in this class. Good for, pit, for fitting in those things that aren't necessarily heavy but are kind of bulky. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And uh, what kind of uh, cockpit and trim it looked like when we had a look in the window, it looked like it had a pretty nice uh, leather interior in there. It's it's very well finished. Uh, in fact, it's, it's finished to the quality of a... A, a high quality uh, vehicle uh, these days like a BMW uh, it's full leather seating it's got uh, fully adjustable seating full leather and all the trim in the aircraft is, is finished to a very high standard and something that you'd be proud of to uh, take your your uh, girlfriend or uh, friend for a fly. What about the uh, standard of avionics? We've noticed a lot of glass cockpits here at Tamora this weekend. Well, it's interesting. The, the one you see here at uh, Netfly, if you look at the number on the side of that particular aircraft is 747 it happened to be that a 747 pilot bought that aircraft and we outfitted it. It's got virtually every bell and whistle that you could imagine. He's got a, a, a full three-axis autopilot. He's got a Dynan D-180, a Dynan D-10. He's got a uh, GDU-370 GPS. He's also got a HSI uh, coupled into the dining as well so uh, you can outfit these aircraft virtually with whatever avionics you would like perfect for uh, shooting that uh, IFR approach into Kai Tak <laughs> in fact he was he was actually a uh, Cathay Pacific pilot so <laughs> that's uh, just on the uh, on the interior and that obviously uh, aircraft and light sport aircraft in the last three years have come a long way how important is it to the uh, purchaser the potential buyer for the aircraft to be equipped like a car? Well, I, I think everything's personal preference. And just like a car, you'll get you'll get a Jeep. You can go out there and buy a Jeep. You can go out there and buy a Ute. You can go out there and buy a town car. I would say that uh, I would look at the Paradise as being the town car. It's a car. It's something that's very, very comfortable. We'll do long distances and it's something you can show off on a Sunday. Um, whereas a Jeep, if you want to go beach bashing, you'll buy some of the other aircraft out there on the market. So... So the great thing about uh, recreational aviation these days is that you've got a choice of so many different aircraft. Um, I believe that the Paradise will suit a certain niche uh, market and people that are looking for quality and comfort, they'll come and look at the Paradise. Of course, all this has to come at a cost. What's the price? What, what is someone looking at? Basically, again, the cost, like the 747 guys aircraft, uh, that was quite a high cost. Obviously, toys are very expensive, but the basic aircraft we would probably get you $130,000 for, and that's with a radio transponder and um, yeah, lighting, uh, anti-collision, landing light, and what have you. So, okay. so an aircraft ready to fly um, into anywhere, uh, around about the 130 mark. In terms of delivery time, what are they? What are you expecting? Uh, basically, we've, we have uh, several in stock now, so available for immediate delivery. But being South South America, there is a six-month lead time, so we try to keep some in stock. But if somebody wanted a custom-designed aircraft uh, with specifics built in, then it could be up to a six-month uh, waiting list. Okay. How many of these aircraft are uh, flying around in Aussie skies at the moment? Well, currently we've got six here, six flying in the country. Um, but uh, in South America, they've got some 200-odd aircraft flying around and they're building, uh, they've actually got a GA version, a four-seat version, and this particular aircraft in Brazil, it was built to the uh, 720 kilogram standard. So had RAOs gotten their 720 kilogram uh, limit, this aircraft would have come in on the register at 720 kilograms. So uh, they are available in Brazil as a four-seat aircraft. That same airframe is being used here on the 600 kilogram. That's 
hence we have that very large baggage area. That would, yeah, that would explain it. Like similar how the Jabiru have got the, the one of the new ones, yeah. you can take yeah. the, back, the two back seats out, fly it as RA, That's but correct. it's huge. <laughs> yep. John, away from the aeroplane now and just talking about events like Natfly, how important are events like this uh, to the industry and also to the aircraft, uh, I guess, sales market and distribution market? Firstly, let's look at the American market, probably the biggest market out there. I've, I've been across to uh, Oshkosh, I've been across to Sebring, which is their light sport aircraft uh, yep. expo over in Sebring, um, just to see people, when they decide to make, have a purchase, they'll normally come to something like Netfly. They'll, they wish to have a look at all the various aircraft there. They're all lined up. They can have a look at it and make an informed decision. And so I think it's very important from the uh, marketing perspective for, for aircraft uh, importers and aircraft builders is to, to showcase their products. So it's something like Netfly that gives us that opportunity, I, I think is very important. And it, it certainly is, uh, for, for the pilots out there, a great marketplace to, to come and see the aircraft uh, yeah. up close and personal. Yeah, it definitely gives, uh, gives everyone a chance to do a test fly like they do in Sebring. Mm. Uh, some of the other shows, you can see it on static, you can see someone else flying it, but you can't really, other than sitting in it, you can't do anything more. You can't take it out for a fly. You can't uh, go and feel it for yourself. And, that, that, that's yeah, that's and John, yeah. Uh, obviously customers are welcome to do this. Uh, someone can come up and say, hey, can I take a seat in your aeroplane? And Yep, uh, we're, we're down there currently, and uh, anyone would like to come down and uh, take a seat, have a have a see whether it fits them, you know, play around with the adjustment, seat adjustment, and yeah, we're happy to, to take them through the aircraft. And uh, John, do you have a website uh, that people can visit if they yes. want to have a look? Yeah, the website is www.lsaoz.com www.lsaoz.com folks, so check it out, a very nice looking aircraft too. John Garden, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Sam Poliak, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Uh, how long have you been flying, mate? I've started flying in 1990, and I've only flown gyrocopters. Only gyro? I've never flown fixed wing. Wow, what got you into gyros? I just liked helicopters, I suppose. Yeah. Just the skinny blades and the spinning around. Yeah. And, um, yeah, just like being out in the open like a motorbike, and they're just so... They've got such a good flight envelope. Can you tell us about that envelope? Yeah, the envelope's really slow on the landing, so our landing roll's really, really slow. We don't take up much room to land. Um, we pack up really well. We're very skinny, so you can fit us in a hangar easily. And you see by the row of gyrocopters here today, all very skinny. Just, yeah, just that safety things. When the things go wrong and you land somewhere, we can just land short. No worries at all. Well, mate, yours looks like what I consider to be a classic gyrocopter. You've got, you're sitting outside like you are in a motorbike. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got the fairing here and you've got the, yep. the glass fairing here and a bit of fiberglass around you. Yep. But these next couple further yeah, along, they've got know. a full canopy. Yeah, how good's that? That's insane. They're, yeah, they're no, they're, they're, the gyrocopters have come such a long way in 25 years. Like just, yeah, it just blows you away to think... In the old days, I had a Mad Max machine, like you'd do that, yeah, get, yeah. get the snake off the seat first, yeah. kill the snake, <laughs> then start your gyro and go. Yeah. Just like Mad Max. Yeah, and this is just so crazy and different. Now we can fly anywhere, all yeah. around Australia. We've got endorsements now through Castra to be able to fly all around Australia into airports, so people just flying them everywhere. There's a couple of gyrocopters down there that came from Townsville. Oh, wow. That's and they went ball. to Kangaroo Island first, which is in South Australia, <laughs> and came back here to be here. Yep. And tomorrow they're flying back north to St. George. Okay. So, yeah, the range now in gyrocopter is in how far you can fly. In the old days, you had a little two-stroke engine, like a lawnmower engine. It's a really slow speed, you know, 45, 50 knots. You couldn't go very far. You didn't have a radio. <laughs> you couldn't talk to the ground, you know, any of the air traffic people. So yeah. now, yeah, we've got, in this machine here, we've got four hours. and We'll do 65, 70 knots. 
So 240 nautical miles in four hours. That's great. Yeah, before we have to refuel it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What kind of, uh, so it's got a Rotax in it? Yeah, this has got a Rotax 914. It's a turbo version, so it's top of the range. <laughs> so you've got a turbo in there as yeah, well? Yeah, on the other side of the little turbo. Oh, my God. And it's a factory turbo. So it's guaranteed to do so many hours, like 2,000 hours they can do now. Amazing. And, yeah, run continuous boost for five minutes and just gives you that, that flight envelope. Everything's got an envelope. Yeah. So, you know, it's all lift-drag ratios, and with the extra horsepower and not much weight, yeah, we can just climb, climb, climb. Excellent. So do you um, do you use the engine to spin up the blades before yeah, you take I, off? Yeah, on this machine, this is an ELA tandem gyrocopter, so it's factory-built in Spain. It comes here in a shipping container, and we put the wheels on it, put the blades on it, we test it for the customer. So nowadays, in the old days, you had to make your own out of a set of plans. Yeah. Now you go, oh, I want a, you know, a, a yellow one with a foxtail thing on the and antenna. You know, you go, okay, we can do that. So it's all so much better than before. So that's the pre-rotator system you see okay. back here. So this, this lever here pulls that belt on, which pre-rotates our blades. Our limiting factor is our blades. We need to get them to spin before we can fly. Uh, they auto-rotate. Mm. They're designed to do that. Uh, and we spin them with this system here. So we're now we're not... In the old days, it was by hand, if you've seen Mad Max. Now this system here, the engine does it for us. So it's basically spin the blades up and go. So you get the blades spinning up to what kind of RPM? Yeah, this one, this one here will do um, over 200, and then it flies about 320 to 400. The blades are self-governing in okay. a design in speed. They only spin as fast as they have to for the weight they've got to carry. So now you fly this from the front cockpit or the back when you're on your own? Yeah, on my own, I'll fly from the front, and it's only a balance thing. So you've got weights and balances and stuff. But when I'm training, I'll sit in the back and um, yeah, just monitor the pilot in the front and... Yeah, it's all very easy. You should go for a fly. I'd love to. These things are great. Yeah. I, I love these aircraft. Uh, they're just excellent. Now, I noticed that you were loading some gear into here that looks like uh, getting ready for cold weather. You had some yeah, Ugg boots there. Yeah, we had Ugg boots. Yeah, we found that we're on in winter, the Ugg boots are just awesome. Like, you can feel nice and warm. <laughs> and we've got these commercial freezer suits, so nice and warm. Because you're out, in, out in, the, in the wind a little bit there. We've got windscreens and stuff like that, which protect us from the wind, but... Still, it's, it's cold because every thousand feet, it's like two degrees colder. Yeah, exactly. So the lapse rate. Yeah, it's like riding a motorbike. You're just sitting there in the cold, going, "Oh my god!" So <laughs> when, when you're a bit warmer, yeah, it's just excellent, excellent. So whereabouts are you based? I'm based over near Yass, New South Wales. Yep. So it was only um, I'm 86 nautical miles away. So it took us about 86 minutes to get here. Yeah, nice, nice quick hop. Yeah, it was actually a very quick hop. So how much does one of these units go for, and what's yeah. it take to get into being a gyro pro- yeah. plane pilot? This machine here is a bit of a top of a range um, option on this company here. At the moment, it's about ninety thousand dollars. The base one's probably about seventy thousand um, dollars. Training, you need to do 20 hours of training. And it's really deemed on your perception of how you take it up you know if you can do this x y and z okay it's you'll move on to the next bit of training but 20 hours is what they they um, stipulate as the minimum um people can go more or you can go less i think 15 hours minimum plus three hours by yourself yeah and you you get an instructor signed job but just see how you progress through the um flying thing everything's got a thing you have to do with different procedures it's all procedures yeah it's all pretty easy actually the machine actually flies better than the pilot <laughs> knowing me as a pilot yeah. that's not hard yeah because it's, it's all self because because it's um a gyrocopter and the blades are spinning gyroscopic forces are happening it flies steady and good and, and mainly the pilot will overcorrect. and what happens with helicopters because of that gyrocopic procession yeah. in the blades your input you'll go oh yeah and it won't do nothing it's just lag fights you it, yeah there's lag in the system so you get oh nothing's happening so if you just relax give it time to react okay. as i always say just relax 
Cool. And I know that you've got a, your own G2727 as yeah. the number on this aircraft. Yeah. That's So that's not quite our, it's part of RALs, but the, no. or is it? What's happened is CAS has made all us, all us ultralight people in different categories be um, governed by our own body. So we're governed by the Australian Rotorcraft Sport Association, and that's why we've got G for gyro. Right. Or grasshopper. It's like, we're all low in the food chain of, of aviation. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're low down there. We're allowed to fly very low. We're allowed to go down to 300 feet nice. above the ground. Very and, handy. Yeah, 500 foot circuits and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But we, yeah, so we're slowly getting higher and higher. Okay. With, with this machine now, I can go as high as I want. I don't have to go to 300. 300 is our minimum. Yeah. Yeah, so you, how high have you taken it? Oh, crikey, I'm scared of heights. <laughs> I know it sounds funny, but... Oh, I'm, I, I fly yeah. balloons and I'm afraid of heights. Yeah, <laughs> probably about um, three or 4,000 feet above the ground is a good limit for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I get a bit nervous after that. <laughs> it's a long way down. <laughs> Absolutely. So do you um, take this thing in um, trailers at all? or? No, we have, have trailed it at once. I had a, a training uh, weekend in Queensland and Neil um, Schiffer, who owns the company, he brought one up for me to fly. Okay. And we've got a special flat trailer. So it, but it packs up really easy. Pull that bolt out on the rotor blades, pull the blades apart. It's really yeah, easy on a little trailer. It's not too bad at all. Okay. So you don't actually uh, lock down the, the blades and then drive? No, because we, we worry about that because they're so long at the back. Yeah. They just have red flags. And they just bend and buying, buying. And it put a bit of stress on the, the bars and stuff. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to say about um, gyroplanes and, and so on? Oh, get into it, dude. They're awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, Sam, thanks very much. No worries, thank you. Gary Flood, you're uh, representing Rotax Engines here today at the show. How are you going? Good, thank you. Yes, plenty of inquiries. Excellent, that's always good. What can you tell us about the modern Rotax engine? Well, it's got a few different things on it from the early ones. Oh, they've all different upgrades they've had on the rocker arms and bits and pieces over the years, and now they've got a soft start ignition on the 100 horsepower, which holds it for a lot longer in retard mode to uh, start the engine smoother and less prop vibration. Basically all is refined it to the standard they are now and they're up to 2,000 hours TBO. Yeah, that was the big question was how yeah. long until you got to pull yeah. it out and strip yeah. it down and yeah. everything. For flying schools they love it because yeah. they get an extra 500 hours out of the earlier ones and before that they were only a 1,000 hours so they've been coming up as the years go by. As, as we get more experience with them yeah. in the fleet. Yeah. Okay, so now this one's putting out 100 horsepower. What kind of applications are you going to see that in? I think Everywhere, got... every, every, every aircraft that comes in the country now got just about Rotaxes in them. Yeah. Technums, uh, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah you're, seeing, you're seeing it in gyroplanes, seeing it yeah, everywhere, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, Cool. MTO3s, what, that's Willie's ones, in it? Or um, the chap up there with the MTO3s. Okay. I noticed here as well, Gary, your twin carburetor. Yep. How do you go in synchronising the carburetors and, and tuning them to one another? Uh, well, you can do it manually. Uh, there's a way of doing it manually, uh, but they're all set at the factory right. It's only the cables, when you hook it up to the aircraft, you've just got to make sure they're opening and closing together. Okay. Yeah. And you can put a manifold gauge on a vacuum gauge, and you could synchronise the cables from there, or you can just do it by feel, because we've had a fair bit of experience and we can do it either way. Okay. <laughs> Obviously one of the questions, uh, or most important questions, is what, what's the cost? What, what's a customer slug to get a new 100 horsepower rotator? Uh, 19.7 plus GST, 
for the engine and then there's options all depends what the aircraft comes in with if they're building one that comes in with their own radiator oil cooler and all that otherwise it could be up to about 23 grand and the company that you're working for which is uh, Burt Flood Imports how yeah. long has this company been in the market we started off with Rotaxes in ultralight 84 and whereabouts are you based? <laughs> um, we're based in Lilydale in Victoria, you know. So with 100 horsepower, what's your general fuel flow through these twin carbines? Well, when we, we got an aircraft going, say, uh, we had an Esquale, which we flew from Coldstream to Bundaberg in Queensland, which is 850 nautical miles. And we, we, it took us 6 hours 20 minutes and we burned 18 litres an hour of fuel and averaged 132 knots there and back. That's not a bad fuel flow. Yeah. <laughs> what about oil consumption? Uh, nothing. Uh, you know, you might use, I can't remember what the figure is, if it uses more than 20 mil in uh, 200 hours there's something wrong, but we don't usually get that. There's really no, you can go for, a, well, you can go from here to... Say Coldstream, uh, there and back, and you haven't used any. Okay, yeah. so that's great. Yeah, sort of modern type engine that doesn't use oil. I remember hearing about earlier Rotaxes with the oil system in there and having to burp the lines and things like that. You still got to do that. Yeah. yeah, when you change your oil, it's okay. very simple to do. You just rotate the prop over without the ignition on, and you hear it. Uh, you hear it gurgle in the oil tank, and then you dip the oil tank. Okay, because yeah, that's bringing it out of the sump. Dump, it's yeah, a, it's dry sump. Dry sump, yeah. Anything else that you know that's coming up in the Rotax world? Uh, not at the moment. They just keep um, updating different things on the engines they've got now. Uh, they haven't got anything coming up. They just like these soft start modules and they keep doing bits and pieces like that and yep. uh, it comes up to time, you know, TBO gets extended. It's water-cooled, are they? Yeah, water-cooled okay. water cylinder heads yeah. and air-cooled uh, cylinders. And there, um, the cylinders are nicker sealed, so it dissipates heat real fast. There's no liner in there. It's like modern day stuff, yeah. which is like in road racing motorcycles and you know all sorts of Grand Prix bikes. It's the same sort of technology. So you could do three and a half thousand hours and still have the hone marks in the bore. Wow. And the piston has worn not even a tenth of a thou. Very impressive. Yeah, because of the bore and stroke and the way it's laid out and. They've come a long way and they've got uh, a lot of tweaking that they're enjoying and every little bit counts. I guess if customers want to know more about this, they can visit your website, which is www.rotax-aircraft-engines.com. Yeah, that's um, yeah, or you can go to our website, which has got that as well. What's your your website Uh, address is? www.birdfloodimports.com.au All right, fantastic. And, and you can, then you can press on service and technical and it goes back to the factory and does all sorts of things. Okay. Have you got any specials going at this stage for the show? Yeah, well, they've dropped down, you know, because our money's better against the euro because you don't buy these in US dollars, you buy them in euro because they're made in Austria. Yep. And, uh, yeah, they've come down more. Three thousand dollars. Nice. Ooh, That's a pleasant. So that'd be including GS too. Plus GS. Even more reason to race on down here with your credit card. Come on down and buy. Okay. okay. All right. Thanks for that. Thanks, Gary. No worries.
Whether you're buying or selling a light single-engine aircraft or a corporate jet, do it faster and easier with aviationadvertiser.com.au. Aviationadvertiser.com.au is Australia's largest aviation marketplace. As the country's largest source of aircraft classifieds, you'll find hundreds of new and used aircraft of all types online 24 hours a day. With ads from just $39 and the convenience of buying and selling online, it's easy and affordable. Connect with Australia's largest buy and sell aviation community at aviationadvertiser.com.au. Rob. Ruth. Ryan. Rose. Rob. Ruth. Ryan. Army choppers only take off because of the team behind them. The Army's now recruiting for roles from pilots to avionics technicians for the aviation team. You'll be paid while you train and enjoy great job security. Call or text Fly Army to 131901 or visit defencejobs.gov.au. Army, challenge yourself. The Aussie Geek Podcast brings you the best from the world of technology. Each week, Dave, Kate, and Keith, the token Canadian, bring you the highlights from the week's technology news, along with great software finds and the best of the web. The geeks are joined by friends of the show who bring their own unique and global perspectives on the world of technology and the way we live in it. Join us each week for the Aussie Geek Podcast. Subscribe today in iTunes or visit us at AussieGeekPodcast.com. The Aussie Geek Podcast. Bloody awesome tech. Pilot Stu here from the Pilot's Journey podcast. You're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, where it's what's down under that counts. Now back to Grant and Steve, the masters of sound effects. And welcome back, folks. We are here at uh, Netfly Tamora, and we, uh, as we've been making a habit of at most air shows lately, we've bumped into Owen's up, so we've dragged him into the mobile studio. How are you, mate? Great, guys. How are you? Not, Not too, too bad. bad. Now, you've uh, been up doing uh, test flights this morning, so uh, we thought we'd have a bit of a chat to you about um, that particular test flight and um, test flights in general. Yeah, it's, it's a great day for any type of flying at the moment. It's sky clear, no wind. Absolutely beautiful up there. It was gorgeous very early this morning. A little cold, but wonderful when I went up. Now, mate, uh, yeah, as Steve said, you've been doing uh, quite a bit of air tests lately. You've done everything from a, a Citation jet down to little LSAs and so on. And we're really interested to hear what what you do to prepare and how you go about doing an air test. I mean, it's all very well to take a plane up, but what do you have to do before, during and after to make it a worthwhile? I think you probably hit the nail on the head when you said that the range has been from, say, Citation jets down to LSA aircraft, you really have to give it some forethought about what the aircraft's firstly designed to do, and because it's for a magazine, what the reader is, is looking for to learn about that particular aircraft, and, and the people that are, are looking to learn about a Citation jet are, are looking for different things to learning about an LSA, what rolls it in, and, and some of those things you can actually get a, a grasp on as you walk up to the aeroplane, okay. just by looking at the degree of sweep on one business jet versus another. One might have a a slightly higher cruise speed, but the other will have better short field performance. So your assessment starts as you walk up to it, but your preparation starts in the week or two before when you think about, well, what do I want to tell people about this aeroplane? In particular, how does it perform in certain realms? Like how much preparation do you do in, in the usual case for most of your air tests? You do start to get a little bit of a format when you've done a number of them. But uh, I would probably spend an hour or two just looking at rough book figures and reading up on the website about what they say about their aeroplane, being aware that that is obviously what the manufacturer wants you to know. And then from there, I'll take that and start to just get a bit of a mindset about what I want to look 
and see with this aeroplane. In terms of the handling, the format of an air test is, is generally fairly similar. But what you're looking for varies from type to type. So what, what kind of things are you going to do once you're in the air? Once you're in the air, it, it generally starts with an air work session. This can sometimes be dependent on traffic and then followed by a series of circuits. Sometimes if I'm doing a bizjet flight, for instance, it'll be a, a short sector. It might be, um, I did Avalon to Essendon via King Island for the, the Citation uh, uh, CJ4, uh, whereas the XLS Plus, I went from Canberra toward, virtually to Melbourne and then back again and did some air work at Canberra. Citation 10 took it from Essendon across to Adelaide. So their sector lengths, which in a bizjet scenario is something you want to see. How does it stretch its legs? What's the comfort like for the passenger? And so the basic format for most aircraft, though, is an airwork session followed by a a variation of circuits. So if you were going to take an LSA out, you're taking it right down to minimum speed, seeing how it handles, things like that, looking for visibility? Yeah, an LSA aircraft, you look at it, it's probably going to be a private touring aircraft. It's quite possibly going to be a trainer. So that what you're looking at is is obviously it's low-speed handling characteristics and that also you're looking at it in a safety sense. But you've also got to look at it if it's a trainer. Yes, it can be benign in the stall and it's handling in the stall, but does it still educate the student enough? Does it have enough buffer to say this is a stall? Some of them are so benign that you sit there going, have we stalled? You you look at the VSI and you're going downhill, you've got no airspeed. Yes, you've stalled, but it's that benign. So you're looking for that, that nice mix of an aircraft that shows you it is stalling but is still a safe aircraft to handle. So in an LSA, low-speed regime is very important. You're then looking at what's it going to be comfort-wise to sit in if you want to fly it to Tamora for a nat fly for an extended period. Uh, from an instructor's point of view or a flying school's point of view, how sturdy are certain things put together? I look for simple little things for aircraft that are going to be trainers, for instance. Where do you put your hand to climb aboard? The absence of that guarantees you that students are going to start breaking the, the combing off the instrument panel. Uh, I look at fuel selectors. Are they easily accessed by both student and instructor? Are they substantial? Are they a two-handed mechanism to switch it off? Or can you go through off uh, going left to right, which there was one aircraft I flew some years back that that was the case. You transited off to change tanks, which I didn't think was a very good idea at all. So there's some of the simple things that you look for in a, in a training sense that you know that in a, a, a workhorse environment will wear out or possibly have potential safety issues. So they're all the little nuances you pick up as well. Are you noticing with the, uh, we, we talk a lot about the change in technology and the advance in technology in these, these LSA type aircraft. What about the, the creature comforts in these planes? Have you found that uh, over time they've been improving? Oh, definitely. Even as simply as the material they're using in the seats, you can find the cushioning and that. They're very comfortable to fly. Like I flew the, the Jabiru around Australia last year and that was 75 hours in 15 days or whatever. And I was comfortable the whole way. And that, that's one of the myths. People have still got a little bit of the, the Mickey Mouse attitude about them at times. But I flew the uh, Technam P2008 at Redcliffe a couple of months ago. And it, it's designed for the American market and bigger people. And it's, it's wide. It's got a heap of space. In fact, the temptation is there's so much space you could throw so many bags in it you'll <laughs> overload it. But uh, no, the space issue and the comfort issue is something that has definitely um, improved, as has the general finish. Mind you, the glass panels always give a nice finish. They, they take the cramping out of the instrument yeah. panel. 
That's interesting. I remember looking at the uh, the jabberie you were flying when you pulled into Point Cook that day and thinking, geez, I'd probably get into that. But, you know, I'm not exactly a small bloke and I didn't know whether I'd, once I got in, whether I'd be able to get out of it. But uh, we've been looking at some, some aircraft around the field here today that uh, are more Americanized, if you like, you know, quite wide and, and quite big. And would, uh, I know Baz Sheffers and I, we're both big blokes and we sat in one yesterday quite comfortable. So it's uh, it's obviously a Yeah, I think you'll find most of them, once you, you're in position, like we all flew 152s and, and you're rubbing shoulders with <laughs> the student there, yeah. um, you know, you get in one door and you pop them out the other. Yes. So it's uh, a, a bit of a, a myth still that's a bit of a hangover that people are seeing them as Mickey Mouse aeroplanes, but the culture is changing and it's changed radically over the last two years already. Well, especially now we've got up to 600 kilos, that, that gives you more manoeuvring room for larger people and, f- and full fuel still. Certainly, certainly. Oh, and with all the aircraft that are uh, on show here today at Natfly, are there any that uh, stand out in your books as being a class above the rest? Oh, gee, that puts me on the spot, uh, particularly when I haven't flown them. There's certainly um, ones that... Ha- I, I just saw the Savannah then doing a short field performance, for instance, and that, that caught my attention. I think it's called the Bushmaster, and that caught my attention probably for the fact of, of that performance envelope. Rather than saying is the one that stand out, one that intrigues me, I'd probably say is, is that Bushmaster I'd like to have a go at. And there was also a Pipistrel parked down the far end, and that... that also intrigues me. They all have their strong points and they all have their shortcomings. How's that for diplomacy? <laughs> nice. I'll put it to you this way, Owen. Now, we're here, obviously, there's a lot of exhibitors around. Are you finding a lot of them are wanting you to come and, and fly their aircraft and do an air well, test? I've found that over the last probably 12 or so months, and I think considering I've probably been doing the air test about three years now, you, you get a, a degree of credibility possibly with the manufacturers that um, you, you, you call it as you see it. And if there's a strong point, you emphasise it. And if there is a shortcoming, I think the key is to, to highlight that as well, but but not in a, a degrading sense. You yeah. just cite this is a possible limitation. And sometimes those limitations won't necessarily impact upon the role that the potential purchaser is going to buy it for anyway. And have you found, particularly since you did your there and back tour, you know, it's given you a bit more notoriety in this particular class of aircraft, so you, there may be a greater a number of um, potential constructors or sellers around here wanting you to, to fly their aircraft now they know you've got experience with them? I, I, I wouldn't say necessarily a, a, a greater number as such, but I think the fact that Australian Aviation Magazine in potential, uh, particular has highlighted some of these types, that sort of get, starts to break that cross boundary that we've, we've spoken about before that some people look at VH and RA Oz as two totally different worlds and I think um, probably f- having flown the Jabiru around Australia has shown that the magazine and myself aren't purely a VH registered limited organisation we're, we're looking at aviation in Australia and, and these are well performing aeroplanes uh, and part of the Australian aviation industry so I think that's probably uh, what that flight opened up more than anything. Okay, well, Owen, thank you very much for sitting down and having a chat with us. Really appreciate you giving us some insights into what it's like doing an air test. And uh, there you go, everyone. That's things to think of next time you're jumping into a plane and uh, wanting to give it a bit of a whirl and what to look for when you're thinking if it's right for you. Thanks a lot, guys. Great to catch up. Thanks, Owen. Okay, we're here with Paul Chernikev from Rotec Engineering. G'day, Paul. G'day, how are you going there? Welcome to the show, mate, and we're going to have a talk about your uh, radial engines, amongst other things. Okay. Mate, you guys do radial engines. Why? That's a good question. Uh, we, um, well, I guess as a child I was always interested in uh, mechanical stuff and aeroplanes and in particular piston engines and I think the engine that captured my imagination the most was the radial and I don't think I'm Robinson Crusoe there. I think most people are, find an appeal in the round engine and um, I was lucky enough to turn a dream into reality through more through um, fortune or more chance than anything else. 
So how did you go about uh, setting it all up? Yeah, well, what happened was um, I was a very keen and avid um, uh, model aviator. As a kid, no money, you know, what are you going to do? So you just build toys and, and the planes, as I got a bit more money, the planes started getting bigger and bigger and we were building our own engines and uh, the last engine I built was a, a 350cc seven-cylinder four-stroke radial engine from scratch. It took me two years to make and it was going to power a half-scale GB. And the engine became so precious to me that it, I never dared put it on a plane, but it ran like a top and it made um, a lot of magazines internationally and that um, attracted not just model aviators but uh, home builders and they were drawn to this engine and contacted me and then the proposition to build a, a large radial engine was was made and then um, I thought, okay, and so we built one and then one led to five and then to 20 and the next thing we knew we had a, an engine manufacturing company building radial engines and that's what we've been doing for the last 11 years now. Okay, and so have you been um, you're getting them certified and built to any specific standards? Uh, they're pretty much built to my standard, which is uh, good enough. But um, no, we don't have any certified engines. We, we supply to the home-built and experimental market. Um, that gives us the freedom to develop the engine and not get locked in if we need to make a change. And, uh, and there's certainly been modifications over the years. And so we're, we're in no hurry to certify. We don't see any major advantage from a marketing standpoint. And uh, we like the freedom and flexibility of building an experimental engine. With the engine itself, um, I notice it's, uh, it is a seven-cylinder engine. Yes. What type of power output does the engine have? Uh, the seven-cylinder radial is um, 110 horsepower. It's a geared engine at three to two reduction. And the nine-cylinder engine is a 150 horsepower engine, and again, at a three to two reduction. So probably not a lot of the listeners uh, who haven't had experience with radial engines, but maybe just explain the concept of uh, how the, the gearbox works in the engine. Well, the, the, the good thing about a radial engine is... Um, uh, the crankshaft is in the centre of the engine, which means that we can build a planetary gearbox and, and people wouldn't know the difference. There's no offset or stepping on the shaft. It's, it's continued right through. And in fact, if I didn't tell you, you wouldn't know that our engine was geared. A 3-2 to two gearbox is basically a planetary gearbox where you've got your classic sun gears, uh, ring gear and, um, and bell gear um, in all, all nicely... Um, packaged in the nose of the engine. So that's in that the forward dome that's right. around yes. the centre shaft. Correct. Yeah, it's all housed in the front front section there and nice and central and right in the uh, the dead centre of the engine. So um, yeah, the, the beauty with the gearbox is it allows us to swing a larger propeller. Our engines are quite high torque compared to engines of a similar capacity that don't have a gearbox. So that allows us to turn at a slightly elevated RPM and then turn that extra horsepower into torque via the gearbox, and that's the key. So we can swing much bigger props than our counterparts can with direct drive. Now, obviously being a radial engine fan, I'm used to the, the bigger engines. Yes. Um, we kind of uh, like radial engines because they smell like oil, they leak oil, <laughs> they leave oil. In fact, I think if you see a radial engine that doesn't have oil, it's typically more of a concern. But mm. uh, I notice with your engine... They don't actually have a lot of oil around them. Well, that's that's a nice compliment because we do work hard to not have... Uh, I mean, the, you can't win if um, if someone says, oh, your engine doesn't leak oil, it's not a radial, but the moment it leaks a drop, they complain like, you know. <laughs> so you can't really win. But no, we're to all take that as a compliment. But one thing our engines do do is they, they, they do sound like a radial when they fire up. Oh, uh, yeah. They blow smoke on startup. We still have to hand prop them like a radial. So we're lucky that we've got the advantage of building a classic engine with modern design techniques and seals and metallurgy so we can build the engine like a, as tight as a Rotax but in a round engine. And that's one of the things that I've certainly noticed about the engines is that uh, clearly these engines are taking advantage of modern metals and yes. obviously it, it looks like a little bit of CNC machining as well going in there? Oh there's a hell of a lot. The entire engine is actually CNC 
machine from um, Billet, CNC machine. Of course, like you said, we've got modern, not only modern metallurgy in there, but we've also got modern electronics. The ignition is no longer those big heavy magnetos with, you know, a 20-pound um, generator. We've got modern 40-amp, 45-amp alternator, tiny and lightweight. Uh, the, the ignition is electronic, brakeless. So it's, um, yeah, it, it starts in the first blade every time, and it, it really gives you very little problems. And the components are quite economic and cheap, and they are lightweight. That's the key. The, uh, the exhaust collection setup as well, very traditional for a radial engine, but I notice modern material. Oh, yeah. The, look, the engine is, for the best part, it's just a classic radial engine. It's got its master rods, chrome molly. It's, there's nothing really that different about what we do. Um, the, the exhaust system is a, is a stainless steel collector ring with expansion joints on every cylinder, and that, that's all very typical. I mean, we, the, the design of the engine was motivated from a myriad of my observations as a young guy looking at uh, engines and um, you know just thought a lot of it had to do with um, the styling of the engine was important so we wanted the push rods at the front and you know make everything look nice and that's got to be guys one of the things when you look at these engines I mean it just it's like a picture from the 1930s except they're beautifully clean they look absolutely meticulous in their presentation I could easily see uh, one of these engines installed in a beautiful uh, scaled down Sopwith pup or something like that (laughs) yeah well we've powered the engines have been very popular with the World War One fraternity and um, scale replica Stearmans and it really opens up a broad spectrum of um, home builds that were Previously, um, probably not considered, or if they were considered, they had to compromise with the engine type. I mean, you build a sop with pup, you put a Rotax 582 in it, it doesn't really cut the mustard. But now <laughs> they can put a proper radial engine in yep. it and really... It's like putting the engine at the back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's... Uh, What's the point of having it? <laughs> so that's what we offer, and that's, uh, we've got a bit of a niche market there. And, um, yeah, no, it's been, it's been a, a bit of a journey, but over the 11-year period, it's been a lot of fun, and we've made a lot of friends both in Australia and internationally, and it's been yep. good. Well, it's, uh, it's great to see all those aircraft you've got lined up outside your stand that are powered by your engines. It's, it is like Ben was saying, walking back through the 30s. I'm, I'm looking across there. They're it's going up flying. It's barnstorming. It's absolutely it's beautiful. I'm really impressed with some of those. Yeah, well, he's, uh, you're right, and I get a real buzz out of it. I mean, each year our, the popularity of our engine increases, but this year has uh, knocked me dead. I mean, the cost, customers turning up and putting their aircraft on our booth. Um, I, I sort of anticipated to have a few aircraft here, so I got three booths this year, and um, yeah, it's a, you get a real buzz. It's a yeah. very proud feeling to look at all those aircraft that people have entrusted in your engine and see them displayed on your booth in the sunny, you know, blue skies and sunshine, and those radial engines glistening at the front. It's uh, yeah, I get a real kick out of it. It's great fun. Yeah. No, it's what good. sort of uh, what sort of aircraft uh, that, that we see here today tomorrow are using your engines? Yeah, we've got a, a variety of aircraft here this year. Um, all of them are. Uh, Classics. Uh, my own aircraft that's been here, uh, been to Natfly several years now, is a, a Bowers Flybaby. It's a 60s design, but it's actually a 30s uh, uh, replica. Um, it's a two-seat low wing. It's got the wires all around the wings and uh, open cockpit. It's um, yeah, it really captures the uh, the feel of uh, those yesteryear open cockpit flying. That's my aircraft, and then the. There's a Funk B, a 1946 Funk B, which is a, a an actually a, a genuine uh, certified aircraft that's, uh, again, flattering for them to remove the Lycoming engine and put the radial on it, which I think looks fantastic. Yeah. And he's flown that engine all the way, uh, that aircraft and engine all the way from Perth. So that's a fair height. Oh, wow. Um, then there's another aircraft that looks like it's going to be a, an award winner tonight. Is um, uh, There's a Fisher Classic there, that green and cream biplane. Yeah, that's uh, looking and, great. Uh, and then there's the Gear Sport, uh, which is yeah. a, a previous award winner as well, which yeah. is a 1928 on out of a popular mechanics magazine. So, yeah, there's a real mixture of aircraft there. Fantastic. 
I'm seeing pictures of scaled down Lockheed uh, Hudson's, uh, <laughs> scaled down DC3s. Yeah. <laughs> what an opportunity has, that engine presents. Has yes. anyone done any um, multi engines? Yes, we have one, a, a spectacular aircraft that's almost online um, in the States. The guy's building a Sikorsky flying boat with two nine cylinder engines mounted mid wing in the biplane. Absolutely spectacular Absolutely project. Absolutely and, beautiful. And it's, it, is, uh, it is running now and it's, it's very close to being finished. So when the guy said to me, I'll take two engines for a, a twin application I uh, in a Sikorsky flying boat you think oh well that'll never happen yeah, but no. it has he's built it pretty quickly too old guy fantastic so that's job. that's the classic one where the engine's on a pylon above push pull they're in that no no they're, they're, uh, they're, they're both between the wings in nacelles and, okay um, I think this aircraft's actually uh, it's it's one that's very similar to the one that was in the aviator yes that yeah. would be that's, very that's similar the beautiful aeroplane it's got its own pods um, yeah, you know, yeah. each, between each one nice. very nice looking aeroplanes so where to for the future now? You've got the 110, you've got the 150. What are you doing Well, next? I mean, we, we've done the radial engines. Uh, that's our mainstay product. We've been doing that, as I said, for 11 years. The seven-cylinder was our first product, and then in about nine, uh, 2005 we introduced the nine-cylinder, and that was possible because we utilise around 90% of the same componentry that we use in the seven, so it, it wasn't such a, a monstrous task being uh, not having to machine a brand-new engine. So that was that was possible. And in recently... Um, you know, aviation's been pretty hardly hit with the GFC, and so we're we're fairly uh, innovative at Rotec. And uh, to keep the gears turning, we introduced a few more products. We now do the throttle body fuel injection, which has been very popular worldwide. And this year, for the first time, we've just introduced a liquid cooled solution for the Jabiru. Uh, a six and four cylinder engine they're also on display at the moment so it's been a busy show for us just also we haven't touched on it price wise for these engines what's yeah. a customer looking at to get into these classic radials they're remarkably economic the uh, the seven cylinder engine runs at 17,700 plus GST and the nine cylinder runs at uh, $22,500 plus GST so that's very affordable horsepower when you'll consider the nine cylinder at 150 horsepower and the seven cylinder 110 if you do the numbers and also look at the servicing and maintenance and Spare parts in our engine is, is very uh, affordable. TBO is a thousand hours between overhaul, and we've had uh, we will allow engines to go past that. It is just a recommendation, and uh, and so far we haven't had any problems with that TBO, and uh, that's a lot of flying for an mm. average pilot who, if he's busy, might do fifty hours a year. <laughs> that price includes uh, the engine. What else? Yeah, unlike some other manufacturers, where you've got to buy radiators and bits and pieces on top of that. That's a complete engine that comes with the exhaust collectoring, the engine mount componentry for you fabricate your own mount. Um, comes with the uh, dual ignition, the carburetor, starter motor alternator, a proper alternator, not a little dynamo bolted on the back. It's a, a 45 amp alternator, so it's a, it is a comprehensive package. Um, the only thing that the customer would, would probably need to organise is an engine mount, which we can make for them yep. on order, or and an oil tank. It, the, okay. it's, a, it's, a, it's a dry sump engine, so the oil tank is uh, remote from the engine. And you're finding that, uh, you know, with the advent of particularly the uh, the RAOs, the LSA market, there's a lot of innovative designs around here. You're finding more and more people are seeking out your type of engine? Oh, yes. I've been um, blown away with some of the uh, innovation that uh, home builders have, yeah, have applied. You know, there are a lot of aircraft that you wouldn't dream of our engine fitting. Uh, have, have been installed in it. I mean, it's like the old saying, if you've got an engine, they'll find an aircraft for it, and uh, <laughs> that's been happening. We have Zenith 200, which was powered previously with a Continental O200 flat engine turned up with our nine-cylinder engine uh, this weekend and uh, completely blew us away. I mean, not in a million years would I have imagined that, but the blistered cowl on the front, it's spectacular yeah. airplane. Is that that little one that went up earlier today with yes. the bubble, ca- bubble canopy yep, and side-by-side? Side? Yeah, yeah that's beautiful. I, I took it for a fly with the... Uh, 
with the owner, and um, yeah, I was very impressed. Very yeah. impressed. Well, whereabouts are you located? Yeah, we're uh, our machine shop is um, is uh, Melbourne based. We're just off the back, uh, the southern end of Moorabbin Airport and to Haviland Road, and we have a fairly extensive machine shop that uh, manufactures all these parts and products, and uh, we assemble the engines there, test them, and um, and then we take them down to Moorabbin Airport where we've got a little run-up area there, and we give every engine around a, about a five-hour, a four-hour burst and make sure it's uh, got no oil leaks and it's running smoothly and any adjustments we need to make, we make. And that's why when people receive our engine, it generally works straight out of the box, no problems. Absolutely. And uh, where can people find you online, mate? They can get us on uh, www.rotechradialengines.com uh, or they can uh, just Google Rotech and it'll we're on the top of the list, mate. And that's R-O-T-E-C. Okay. R-O-T-E-C. As in Rotary Tech. Yes. That'll do. It's actually yeah. a radial engine, but yes. I, I keep I keep slipping into rotary because I'm yeah. a Mazda, I tell you. Yeah, <laughs> it's round. They're both round. Yeah, do. absolutely. That's fascinating, mate. They're beautiful-looking engines, and they're sitting on some beautiful-looking aircraft. Uh, Paul Chenick, if, uh, we thank you for joining us today. No problems. Thanks, guys. Cool. Thank you. Nick Sharples, you've got a very distinctive-looking aircraft here. Uh, it's called an Avoset. Yeah, we named it after a bird, but we also coined a pretty cool acronym out of it. Um, Air Vehicle Outback Camper Emergency Transport. Very cute. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, Nick, you and your dad have flown this in from Hawker in South Australia, yeah? Yeah, my dad f- flew it in. I'm based up in Brisbane studying at uni. And, um, yeah, so dad flew it in from Hawker on Wednesday. Well, I'll call the train over, but, uh, yeah, flies pretty good. Now, it's one of the distinctive parts about this that first grabs you from a distance is the fact that you've got a um, pusher-mounted propeller above the wing on, on uh, pylons. Yeah, well, that, that was really a necessity. We couldn't really stick the engine anywhere else and keep the plane size down. Yeah. I mean, the tail's already three metres up. You yeah. know, it's, it's a fairly long aircraft to, to start off with. If we were to stick the engine on the front, it would just make it way too big and blow it right out of the um, light sport category. So the, really the only spot that we could put it was on the roof, and that opens up many options of having like an amphibian version later on, and, which we're going to do. Well, that was my first thought when I looked mm. across and saw a propeller and an engine mounted this high. I was like, a buccaneer? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and then and then the cl- crowd's cleared and I got past a few aircraft. And yeah, realized. yeah. So you've got like a... Um, very streamlined uh, nose you're sitting right up the front you've yep. got the engine above you on a high wing yep. and the other distinctive part here is at the back you've got a couple of clamshell doors underneath the tail yeah well basically we thought you know it was about three years ago when we went to design this and uh, dad's built 17 uh, j230s and i've helped him with that over the years and um we looked at the j230 so you know you've got a pretty impressive aircraft here i mean jabber has his floors all planes have their mm. floors and um we thought, you know, it's got a pretty impressive load bed here, but the same problem we keep on running into is you just can't access it. Mm. You know, you can't stick whatever in the back. You can All you have to do is that one little door to shove stuff through. What we did, we stuck the tail up yeah. and uh, shift the people up the front. We had to stick the engine on top, had to stick it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, so that gave us basically a six-foot load bed, and you've got clamshell doors at the back. Eventually, they'll be designed so they can open internally. Okay. And... Um, yeah, so basically you can stick a motorbike in the back. Wow. Yeah. Very handy for yeah, landing at some handy. field out in the Yeah, I mean, even just like country airports. Here's a classic mm. example. It's a 4K hike to the town. Mm. You don't want to do that. You pull out your scooter. 
you know, you can stick a scooter in there, you've easily got a couple of days' luggage, two people, and the plane will still take that. And, yeah, you can scoot off into town, you know, go around wherever, do whatever you want. You're not hindered anymore by taxis or walking. Indeed, and it's, it's better to have a scooter than one of those collapsible push bikes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so it's a lot safer too, a lot faster. Yeah. I mean, here, with a scooter, you could quite easily go to, you know, Kutamundra. Yeah. It's a 50Ks up the road. It's no big deal. No, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Do all the uh, gear, the wheels, the, the wing, the landing gear, all that kind of stuff, that was all sourced just through the market, or...? Yeah, basically, um, we got those from Jabiru. It's a, you know, tried and tested design we didn't need to muck around making undercarriage making the wings okay because it's that's an absolute nightmare the most of the tails jabberoo we had to uh, change the vertical stabilizer for it to fit the design mm-hmm. i was we would have actually put a jabberoo <laughs> tail on there okay. basically all we wanted to do was build the body the rest is already existing yeah so we don't need to go and make all that sort of stuff yeah it's already there we can buy it off the shelf it's yep. just literally bolts on. And so what kind of performance are you getting? What kind of load and things like that? Well, you get uh, empty weight is 360 kilos. Um, well, they've just upped the regulations to um, 600 kilos maximum takeoff weight. So basically it's you're limited by how many pies you eat on a day and uh, how much fuel you carry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but otherwise it's pretty much like the Jabiru yeah, uh, 230 you, in terms of its capacity. Yeah, it's. I mean, we're, we're running J250 wings here. Mm-hmm. You've got the slightly longer cords, so that carries even more. I can't remember the exact figures off the top of my head, but Google will tell you those. And, yeah, so it'll lift as much as the wings will carry. Yeah. Okay, anything else you'd like to say about flying this one? Well, um, I haven't flown it personally yet, but Dad says it flies like a dream. It's yeah. still weather. Probably going to take up tomorrow maybe. Bit of a show, and, but yeah, no, it's a nice aeroplane. Three years in the making, it's good to see it here. Definitely. Mm. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, no problem. Tony Blair, you're with the RAAF. You've just done a great aerobatics demonstration in your own time in a nice uh, blue aircraft for us. Uh, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks very much. It's good to be here. It's a, it's a terrific event. Excellent. Well, Tony, uh, tell us all about this fantastic blue aircraft you were just flying. We're not familiar with it. Right, it's a, uh, it's a Rebel 300, which is a, um, a purpose-built aerobatic or stunt plane, if you like. Um, it uh, has a, a Lycoming six-cylinder engine in it, uh, about 330 horsepower. It's it's very light, so it's um, very overpowered. Um, but for unlimited or um, more extreme type aerobatics, it's it's perfect for the role, basically. Okay. How long have you been flying it? I've had it about, well, getting close to three years now. And I had a another aerob- aerobatic plane before that one that wasn't um, quite as capable. Um, so I bought this more purpose-built one. What was the previous one? I was a thing called a Harman Rocket, which I um, uh, I hand built uh, myself. Um, that took a lot of work. It was about three thousand hours um, slogging away in the garage. So <laughs> this time around, I just uh, bought something ready to go. So uh, you've always been interested in flying, then? Yeah, I have. I've been in the Air Force uh, about twenty-two years. I'm still in the Air Force uh, now, but I uh, was never really in a position to have my own aeroplanes, or, or never felt that way inclined. Um, but uh, about six or seven years ago, I started having my, my own aircraft as well. Okay. So did you learn to fly before you went to the Air Force, or they taught you? No, no, I didn't. Um, in fact, I'm a, a guy that's late to general aviation and or non-military flying. I All my flying was uh, in the military, and I, um, I kind of discovered this whole GA scene and, and uh, light sport aircraft um, scene um, much later. Okay. And suddenly got the idea of um, telling the wife that you're just going to convert the garage into a construction zone? Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> How'd she's that go? Good, actually. She's um, she's uh, well and truly qualified with a rivet gun, and uh, she uh, banged away on a lot of rivets and that thing. <laughs> she came and joined you rather than <laughs> admit defeat, come and join, yeah, can't win. Exactly, I don't think she'd had much of a choice. <laughs> <laughs> so, mate, what, uh, now you mentioned before you've been in the F-111s? Uh, yeah, so I... 
when I first joined the Air Force, I was actually a navigator and spent some time on F-111s there and then went and did pilot's course and back on F-111s. Um, so just the nature of the Air Force is you, uh, you're in and out, so you, you might be there for a while, then go off instructing on another aircraft type and then go back. Um, so that's kind of how it's been going. Um, yeah, so I was first there about 18 years ago, really. So. And then after the F-111s, you, you've said you're now um, with the CT-4s. Yeah, at the moment I'm the um, EXO, or Executive Officer at um, Tamworth's um, Flying Training School. So that's the, the ab initio, or the, the first um, level of flying training that all the um, Defence Force pilots get. So I kind of run the uh, the flying um, at that unit. Um, yeah, it's on CT-4s, which is quite different to flying F-111s, I, I don't mind saying. <laughs> <laughs> They're a lot of fun, though. These are the latest version of them, aren't they? Uh, yeah, it depends how you put it. Um, not really. Um, <laughs> they, uh, yeah, they're CT4Bs. Um, so there's a lot of CT4As uh, flying around in general aviation. Um, so in that respect, uh, they are. But some of them are getting a. I wouldn't say they're long in the tooth. Um, but you know, they've been around a little while now, and we looked at replacing them just recently. There's a new contract being signed, um, and uh, they'll certainly be replaced. The plan isn't about six years. When you're taking uh, when you're taking prospective Air Force pilots through ab initio training, obviously there'll be a lot more uh, Air Force specific uh, aspects to that and does it vary, vary greatly from say the civilian uh, syllabus? Uh, yes and no. Uh, we run a thing called flight screening. It's basically a recruiting tool where potential uh, pilots come there and fly with us for two weeks and uh, as part of that uh, they actually do quite a fair bit of advanced flying um, but it's but it's not specific, um, like they, they don't do the checks and, and RT and all that sort of stuff. So we really, but we do stretch them. So they're doing aerobatics and stalls and spins and all that sort of stuff in their first two weeks. That's not the actual pilot's course. When they get on the pilot's course itself, they do about 65 hours with us in five months. In that, uh, they get to see a fair bit of everything. And it, um, in some ways, it's like a, a degree course, um, if I can put it in uni terms, um, squashed into you know a very short time frame. So they, they, they. Like uh, they work very hard um, is just the simplest way to put it. Um, now, now, when you're doing that sort of screening, it, it's always interested me. What are you looking for? What What are you looking to do? Really stress them out, send them right to the edge of the envelope, and see how they cope with it. Obviously, but what? Yeah, um, that's right. Uh, the Air Force pilot training system is geared up to make fast jet or fighter pilots, um, and uh, obviously, there's lots of other airplane roles to fill. But that's kind of the bread and butter or the, the background of what we're trying to achieve. Um, and that's always a, a bit of a challenge, trying to get enough guys for that, especially with uh, JSF coming in the future. So most people in defence are pretty nervous about getting enough pilots for that, and uh, we're looking at ways that we can improve that. Um, so what we're looking for is um, not necessarily... You, you need to have good hands and feet. Um, it kind of goes without saying, but you need guys that have, seem to have that bigger situational awareness. Uh, they've got a, a big brain on them, basically, that they can, they can fly, but at the same time they can be thinking about what's going on around them in this scenario. And we're always trying to find those guys, basically. Yeah. And that'd be something that there's almost there'd be people that have a predisposition just to have that sort of abilities naturally. I guess that's what you'd be looking for. Yeah, definitely. So yeah. We, we get guys come in that they've done like a lot of flying. Uh, they're very keen and motivated, um, and and they fly can can fly quite well. Um, but if you load them up um, with a scenario that might be a bit more complex, um, you know, they might not perform as well as perhaps a guy that's just walked in off the street and he decided yesterday, hey, I might give this flying thing a try, but you know, he, he might have the, the natural um, ability, if you like, um, that suits what we're looking for. Okay. 
Now, uh, let's talk again about uh, back to your aerobatics that you do. Uh, when did you start doing, you know, like obviously you've done aeros through the, the RAF and so on, but when did you start doing your own GA uh, level aerobatics? About three years ago, um, I, I got into it. I started off uh, with some competition flying. I got hooked up with the guys down in Sydney that are all um, mad keen uh, aerobatic guys uh, and they're terrific guys. And I was really impressed about the way they uh, work together and they do a lot of critique from the ground and it was actually very similar to how you operate in the military. Um, in the military you tend to get a lot of negative feedback about what you do and um, these guys tend to operate the same so I seem to slot in there pretty well. <laughs> um, so that was where I sort of cut my teeth and learnt the basics and then I sort of got the bug for this air show type flying which is what we're doing um, here this weekend of course which is uh, quite a different um, sport compared to the competition one. Yeah. Um, this was more of a freestyle um, flying so you get to, uh, if I don't and make it sound too corny but you get to sort of express the sort of things that you're interested in and, and, and what you like doing yeah now uh, I know you're wearing the same colored uh, suit as your aircraft and you've got got a couple of sponsors there do you want to tell us who your sponsors are yeah sure um, uh, Alliance um, insurance is uh, my major sponsor so uh, obviously they've got their name all over the plane and all over me at the moment they're pretty new to the aviation scene in Australia yeah. uh, so I guess I was just in the right spot at the right time about two years ago um, they were looking to put their name on a plane and so uh, I got hooked up with them and the guy there is Mike Dalton who's very well known um, most people here at this event would know Mike Dalton and it would be the same if you went to a more traditional GA type event uh, yeah he's a very well known guy um, very well respected good operator and you've also got, uh, is that Champion spark plugs there? Yeah, so Champion Aerospace, um, they've been excellent um, to me. The aeroplane, as you probably saw and heard before, it, it has a bit of a hard life. It, it, it does work hard and I, I load it up and they've given me all the, the best gear. Um, so magnetos and the latest spark plugs and slick starts, um, all that technology that you, know, you used to come to an event like this and be a hot day and start the aeroplane a couple of times, you'd be nervous about getting it going. But <laughs> this um, new technology stuff like the slick start that they put on the new magnetos uh, yeah. just always goes. It's, it's good stuff. And it, uh, of course, having a, having sponsors makes it easier for you to get out, stay current, and and yeah. practice and, and appear at these shows. Yeah, definitely. Um, things like the engine um, life is very short, so it runs quite high compression, revs hard, a lot of gyroscopic force on it. So. Um, in the engine area, um, ECI, which is a big American company, they make cylinders and all sorts of engine parts, but um, they've looked after the engine um, internals for me, and with their support, you know, I, at least I'm uh, able to get out and train and, and do the practice that I need to to come to an event like this. And Tony, you've got uh, quite, an, uh, quite a comprehensive blog here at uh, blairaerosport.com.au. What are people expecting to find on there? Just general uh, information about flying or how they can book you up for a display? Yeah, thanks for the plug. That's really good. Um, look, uh, yeah, what I try and do is just use it as my news um, page so if I go to an event such as this one um, I'll put in a little bit of a summary afterwards of, of uh, how the event went things I liked about it, occasionally things that, that um, you know, perhaps could have been done a bit better but just general stuff that I think people might be interested in so uh, you know, when I get back home over the next couple of days I'll hopefully get a few pictures from various people and I'll put that in the blog and um, have a bit of a wrap up of the event and I try and do that for all the events or if there's something else of interest that I think people might like to see I'll put it in there but usually it's uh, it's worth a read so have a look. Do you get to do this on weekends because during the week it's training or is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, the job's quite busy at work now. Um, it's definitely an after hours uh, and weekends um, kind of arrangement. Having said that, um, occasionally at work there'll be something on, uh, we might have everyone, all the students um, at a function or something like that and 
they're always pretty keen for me to get out and have a practice session um, when they're all together. So <laughs> occasionally I can you know, sneak something in in work time like that. Twist your arm. <laughs> the Air Force has been very good. I, um, I, a lot of people are surprised uh, that they let me do this sort of thing in my private time, but they've been nothing but supportive all, all the way through. Um, That's great. Yeah. So, it's very important to keep people, particularly young people, interested in, in aviation and to try and get that bug. Yeah, I, I agree. I often find the people that are supporting me have that sentiment. For example, Sigma Aerospace at Tamworth, they've, uh, they're very keen to have me around and, and be around their organisation and they see that it interests that younger crowd in many respects um, and that's uh, part of the reason that organisations like that uh, are supportive to me. So uh, where do you see the future going for you at the RAF? It's a good question. I, uh, I, I'm actually quite content at the moment um, <laughs> at Tamworth at BFDS. Uh, with the F-111 retirement uh, late last year, um, Super Hornets was something you know, that we looked at. But um, I've got two young girls now, so we, um, my wife had twins uh, not too long ago. And it's nice to be at home, have, have a job where, I won't say it's a nine-to-five job, but you know, I'm home most nights, yeah. whereas... Uh, when I was off working at Air Combat Group, uh, three or four months of the year away was pretty normal and the bad years, well, I wouldn't say bad years, but um, the years where I was away um, more than that, um, sometimes they're up to five or six months of the year away, so yeah. it's nice to be home at the moment. Yeah, no, young family is a great time to be having a stable base. It is, yeah. 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 Excellent. Well, Tony, we're glad you've taken some time away from the family to come down here and entertain us today, mate, and we appreciate you spending some time with us. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, Thanks Tony. John Johansson, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Yeah, it's good to be here. Perfect day. Oh, it's absolutely beautiful Isn't today. It glorious. And, yeah. uh, and I've already been up for a little fly. So oh, lucky fellow. It. Oh, yeah. <laughs> beautiful weather for it. Now, mate, you're with uh, True Track, yep. and you've got uh, Electronic Flight Information Systems, EFIS. Yes. Uh, that's correct. Yes, as well as autopilots. Okay. That, that's the main thing. Um, yep. We've got uh, whether we go for the, the larger EFIS, they're bringing out now their Gemini series, okay. which are uh, a three and an eighth inch, so plug into the standard instrument hole. Okay. Everything from complete engine packages right through to full artificial horizons, basically little small EFIS. Then you can add on your autopilots to them. Okay, and, uh, that's fascinating yeah. stuff. Now you can you can put these in in stages. You don't have to do an, a massive installation of a full system. You can no. do components. That's correct. TrueTrack have a very good deal where they'll actually buy what you already have at very close to the new price that you paid for it. Um, although, let's face it, it is in US dollars, so it depends what our dollar's doing at the time. <laughs> Indeed. But basically, if, if you buy, say, a single-axis autopilot, then you want to upgrade to a dual-axis, they'll take the programmer from the single-axis back and take a, you know, that amount yep. off, off the to dual upgrade. So it's, it really is. They're, they're a brilliant company. Their warranty is second to none. I've never dealt with a company that, that has been as good as these guys. No arguments when something goes wrong. I had one guy let the smoke out, he reverse polarised it, oh. plugged it in, fried it, said it was our fault. Um, the company rebuilt it, sent it back and said, check your wiring, and he said, nothing wrong with my wiring, plugged it in, fried it again. They did it again for him and said, don't do it a third time. Now, who do you know that would even do that once, let no. alone twice? Exactly. Yeah, so exactly. they really are a very exceptional company. Okay, and where, where are TrueTrack based? Based in the US. Okay. Yeah, in Arkansas. And uh, I note from the brochure here that the, this equipment is founded in everything from a Kit Fox through to an FJ4. Yep, that's correct. Uh, yeah, one of the yeah. owners of the company has a jet. <laughs> no, he doesn't actually. Oh, Probably okay. one of his mates, if the truth's known. But oh, okay, yeah. that was a customer. Yep. Yeah, customer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
And uh, of course, with the with the Ephus, the, the guy who designed it, Jim Yonkin, yeah. he's been around forever. He designed the original Century series of autopilots, so he's been on autopilots forever. His whole goal with the Ephus was. I want to be able to climb into a plane. I don't want to have to get the manual out and spend five hours reading before I can fly. So I want to be able to get in there without a a manual and still fly it. I also want to be able to forget my glasses and fly it. That's important. Yes. The older you get, the more important it becomes. Yes. (laughs) I'm finding that. (laughs) And as you can see, standing here in the sun, he's got sunlight readable... Definitely. They've really done it right. They have. I mean, we're standing here in very bright sunlight. I just took a photo of the panel and it's all lit up very well. Uh, So your instruments that you've got here, as you were saying before, so you've got the standard EFIS glass horizon and everything like that. Do you want to run us through what features you've got on that? Well, to keep it really simple, you've got everything you need for an IFR flight deck. Um, Then you can add your, your engine package, which gives you everything. So four or six EGT CHTs, fuel pressures, oil pressures, temperatures, fuel flows. That works. You name it, the whole works is there. In fact, the RV3 there is, it's IFR. You know, add the IFR avionics, it's IFR. And it's all in a little box, as you can see. It weighs nothing. It is quite amazing, a little 12-volt system. Yep. And... uh, so you can and you can install the components as and when you require, as we just yes. said. So that's great. What kind of? So now on your brochure, you're talking about the Kit Fox at 45 knots, the FJ4 at 0.86 mark. <laughs> what? Okay. For the rest of us, what other aircraft have they? Um, have you got these systems in? Oh, crumbs. You name it, they're in them. There's a whole bunch of Jabiru's. We've got the autopilots in them and and the EFIS equipment, um, Technams, RVs, Lancers, Glassers. You name it, they're all in them. Okay. Yeah. So uh, how many of these have we got in Australia? Couldn't tell you. I've never counted, <laughs> to be honest. Um, how many? We've, we've even got um, autopilots in air tractors for when they do their ferry flying. Yeah, yeah. So, Amazing. Yeah. So when you're, um, when you're supporting these here in Australia, mm-hmm. um, do you have a backlog of components? So if something goes wrong, you can swap a new one in while the old one's getting repaired? I'm the service agent okay. in Australia, and there's a lot of stuff I can do here. Yep. Occasionally, I do need to send stuff back to the States. Okay. But for most of the autopilot stuff, I can do it all here in Australia. Now, one interesting bit I note here is that you've got a Wi-Fi and USB connection here on, on this mock-up panel. Do tell... That's one of their new things, and it's it's quite cheap. It's round figures. It's around about 150 odd dollar mark, depending on what the US dollar is doing at the time. Mm-hmm. It has 15 hours of data collection, so it's a black box. Oh wow! Um, and also with the Wi-Fi, you get maps for your iPhone, and it'll show you exactly what you've got on it. So. <laughs> okay, so it'll communicate with via Wi-Fi yes. and. Yeah. With, with like your iPhone or, or your Android, things like that, laptop. I'm, I'm so far out of my depth that it's not funny now. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting into the serious yeah. computer geek yeah, world. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, now you mentioned that was a, like 150 add-on depending on the, the, yeah. um, the dollar. So what prices are we looking at for these units? How, what would a, a base well, system Well, let's be? talk about the EFIS. Mm-hmm. Um, your EFIS, your basic EFIS, round figures, again, depending on the dollar, you're around about... $2,300 plus GST and then with all your add-ons um, we worked it out yesterday for a guy who wanted a two screen set up with autopilot, with engine, with everything on it, it was less than $15,000 wow. $13,000 or something that's and that's amazing. all singing, all dancing and that includes installation? no, basically to, to put an EFIS into it, you need a power wire, an earth wire one wire connected to your GPS and then hook your pedostatic system into it, and that's, that's it, it. Wow. 
And of course you start moving up, you put your engine package in, you've got to run all your EGT, CHT wires into yep. a box. And I think it's three wires, three or four wires out of that box into the EFIS, it's a non-event. Um, autopilot, you've got a few more wires. Yep. Most people don't get um, looms, they do it themselves, because okay. they're easy enough to do themselves. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's not a lot of cabling going on, except no. back from the engine then. That's right. Amazing. And uh, so we're here at this show, uh, beautiful weather, everyone's thinking flying, thinking going glass, looking at it in the sun. Got any specials or any deals for folks while they're at the show? Yeah, come and see me. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And if people were to come and see you, will they find you online or is it best to call? I, I am online, but it's best to call me. Yeah, yep. and uh, what number would that be? 0419 Excellent. So, John Johansson, thank you very much. My pleasure. So, what's your name, please? Uh, John Lindener. And John, where are you from? Uh, Albury. And what brings you here to tomorrow for the for the flight? Anything particular? Uh, just a lifetime interest in aviation, and uh, I've been flying um, 70, and I've been flying since I was 20, continuously since I was 20, and uh, retired from airline flying about 2000, mid-2003, so eight years ago. And I've just been, since then, I've been instructing on microlights, mostly in New Zealand, oddly enough. Really? Whereabouts mm. in New Zealand? In the South Island, near Geraldine. Where, and that's near, I'm not 100% uh, That's an hour and a half, two hours south of Christchurch. Right, uh, okay. Inland from Timaru. I was mostly a North Island boy. Oh, were you? Yeah. Yeah, don't tell me you were a Kiwi. Yes, born and bred. I'm an Aussie who lived in New Zealand. I was the only one there, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, uh, so in the airlines, which airlines were you with? I, I started in the RAAF and then uh, in and out of Qantas and ultimately uh, 20 years in Air New Zealand, which was a very good airline to work for, marvellous airline to work for. A much different atmosphere. In Qantas, the captain was captain or sir, which caused the atmosphere on the flight deck to be quite formal at times. Uh, Air New Zealand was quite different. It was uh, the captain was first names and a much happier airline all round to work for as someone who has seen them both. I left in in 1993. Uh, Air New Zealand was deep into a lot of industrial trouble. I was non-union by that time and invariably flew with um, union co-pilots who wouldn't talk. So uh, I, I didn't, didn't like it, live with it. But after 12 months of that, I decided to try and do something else. So I left and started um, contract flying around the world in different places. Quite a bit out of Fiji um, with Air Pacific. And then two different times I was uh, operating aircraft to the, to the Hajj, uh, the Hajj pilgrimage to, to Mecca, to Jeddah. Uh, the first time in 94 from Indonesia. And uh, the second time in 2000, I was with a an Icelandic company called Air Atlanta. We operated from North Africa to, to, to uh, Jeddah or from Indonesia, Malaysia to Jeddah. That, we, that was an interesting airline. It was a charter outfit, uh, 15 747s, all owned by one of the pilots and his wife. Oh, wow. That's, you don't normally see that. Again, it's owned in inverted commas. Uh, yeah. Everything was leased. Yeah. But he still had 1,000 staff. 1,000 staff. Uh, the pilots were mostly English-speaking, English, Canadians, Americans, Australians few, um, not many captains who weren't English speaking, South Africans, quite a few South Africans. There was a, an Iraqi, when I started there were five captains on the course, myself an Australian and an Iraqi, a South African, uh, a, Chil- uh, a Peruvian and an American. Sounds like a joke, you know, walk into a bar. It does, yeah. <laughs> so uh, now you've been here for two days, one day? Since yesterday, yes. Okay. Yeah. Seen anything that's uh, caught your eye? I have, I have. I've just been fascinated by the um, water-cooled heads for the Jabiru. Okay. I think it might be the saviour of Jabiru, personally. Uh, this, uh, the Rotec, Rotec people there, Yeah. that's one of the things they've developed. And uh, I've had a, a Rains S6 with a six-cylinder Jabiru in New Zealand, 
which I did 350 hours, and sold it because I was moving back to Australia. And I had a great one, but it's much colder in the South Island of New Zealand than, than on a sweltering hot day here. I think it's exactly what, well, from what I can understand, uh, it's exactly what Jabiru needs here to extend the life of many of the engines, because there's a lot of unhappy Jabiru owners, I'm, I'm sorry to say. They're just overheating. They get too hot and the heads warp. And um, I mean, that works with Rotex. They have water-cooled heads and air-cooled barrels. And look how successful they are. So, Pretty uh, interested in that. Yes, I am. I don't have an aircraft at the moment, but but I certainly uh, I have, an, have an interest in Jabiru and, and, and an interest in seeing Jabiru succeed. And that could be the, the thing that they need. Are you uh, looking to pick up an aircraft in the near future? I have to see how much money I've got in the bank. <laughs> <laughs> No, any of them, any New, Ze- New Zealand dollar is, is it just murdered by the Australian dollar. It's definitely at the moment. Is there mm. any particular aircraft you like the style of? Or? I, I, I move from one to the other. I, I'm very impressed with those Morgan things up there, um, but whether I have one or not is another matter. I like uh, Rands. There's a Rands S19 over there in the in the park, but it's not here. I don't, for some reason, it's not. Uh, they don't have a display. But Rands build excellent aeroplanes. They just don't seem to sell well in Australia, but there's at least 100 of them in New Zealand of different models. And very they're, popular there. They're extremely popular. Mate, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. G'day, I'm Michael. Hi, I'm Rosalind. And we're, we're from, from downwind.com.au, the website for aviation enthusiasts. Come and join a community of passionate aviators who love to share about their experiences and the joy of being in the air. On Downwind, you can participate in forum discussions, view great photos and videos, and keep up to date with a weekly newsletter. So come and join the community at downwind.com.au. Want to see Sydney from a different angle? Red Baron Adventures have the flight experience for you. From the aerobatic thrills of the Red Bull stunt plane to scenic flights over Sydney Harbour, there's something for everyone. So check it out at redbaron.com.au for the best seat in the house. Want to advertise your business on the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast? Scripts and Voices has teamed up with the boys at Plain Crazy Down Under to bring you an exclusive offer. Scripts and Voices can make your ad to feature on this podcast at a specially reduced cost. That includes writing your ad, voiceover, backing music and production. To get your ad made in time for the next podcast, check out scriptsandvoices.com. Follow the link and send us an email. For advertising rates and packages, please see the Plain Crazy Down Under website. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. Bryce Hughes from Cub Crafters, welcome to the show, mate. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Now, uh, you're out here with a brand new Cub that's been totally rebuilt from the ground up, is that correct? Yes, yes, it's actually, uh, it's built by Cub Crafters in the US, uh, it's called the Carbon Cub SS, um, and basically it's the uh, Super Cub reinvented. Okay, and it, but it's all been done with carbon fibre, I take it, from the name? Um, it still holds true the traditional uh, tube and, and fabric uh, fuselage and, and wing structure, uh, with the primary frame of the wing being aluminum. Uh, but wherever they've been able to save weight with carbon fiber, it's been done. Uh, the forward uh, cowling is now carbon fiber. Um, tip bows, stringers, um, you've got a composite propeller on it. All the interior has gone uh, uh, carbon fiber versus wood and aluminum like in the original uh, Super Cub. Okay, so uh, it's a Super Cub that fits within the uh, LSA Sport Aircraft. Yes, limit. that's correct. That's okay. correct. Now you're out here, uh, you've got the aircraft, but you've set up an Australian distribution, yeah? Uh, correct. I actually used to work for the factory uh, in the States. I've come back out to help uh, with uh, 
the dealership is owned by Stephen Buckle out of Tyap. He owns Cub Aircraft Australia, and I've come out uh, to kind of help him with uh, establishing his dealership and show the airplane at the show. So who, who was flying it just earlier? Uh, I was. I was. Oh, that was a very impressive departure. We were sitting in here doing an interview, just watching you going up and up and up and up. <laughs> can you tell? Can you tell us about how how this uh, the new Cub handles? It, it'll definitely outperform any ever any other Cub ever built. It's a Lycoming 0320 that's stroked essentially. Okay. Um, so you've got 180 horsepower available to you uh, for takeoff on an airplane that weighs uh, empty uh, about 400 kilos. You know, Bryce, it seems to me that this is one of those aircraft that it's not only been reinvented, but unlike every other airplane that's here today, you know, they're going for speed, they're going for efficiency. It seems to me that you've invented an aircraft that goes slow. Exactly, exactly. We've gone for uh, basically brute strength on on the backfield, uh, backcountry kind of realm. You know, max performance climb, shortest takeoff roll, shortest landing, and uh, best slow speed handling characteristic. Yeah, we got um, some pretty chunky tyres on it. I was exactly, going to make that yeah. point. of the biggest tyres I've ever seen on an aircraft this size. Yeah. 26 inch uh, bush wheels, uh, yeah. made by Alaskan Bush Wheels. Um, but uh, Bryce, uh, yeah. they can get they can get large on this airplane, can't they? <laughs> they can get large. Um, Hard to believe. I've, I've I've seen photos of Cubs with wheels on them that make them look like they're Tonka toys, or you know, it's from some kid's oversized Lego set. Just enormous <laughs> fat tyres, like like you know, monster truck tyres on a tr- on a Cub. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But they'll they'll really take a beating and uh, and keep on going. Yeah. <laughs> now you see, uh, I don't know whether you, you guys, Steve and uh, Grant, have seen the videos of these Cubs landing in rivers and yeah. on uh, rock, rock escarpments. Is this one of these aircraft? Can this airplane do that? This airplane will do that. You can take it right out, uh, you know, you can take it over the States up into Alaska and head straight into the bush with it if you wanted to. Um, okay. You know, it, uh, it'll definitely get in and out uh, wherever, just about wherever you ask it to. So how many have you got here in Australia now? Uh, right now there are two carbon Cubs. Uh, the one that we've got here at the show, that's based out of Tyab. And then uh, there's another one that is flying at a Townsville, uh, which was shipped over here about a month and a half ago uh, with this airplane that we've got uh, here at the show. And then in addition to that, there's uh, two Sport Cubs uh, flying out of, uh, out of Adelaide. I guess up in Townsville, they're getting a lot of experience with hot and high conditions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Probably also water. Yeah. <laughs> Humidity. <Shouldn't> say that. <laughs> oh, flooding. They need the float option. <laughs> yeah, well, I take it you do have a float option? There is a float option. Uh, amphibious floats for the carbon cub. Um, and, uh, yeah, same same story. It'll uh, uh, jump off the water uh, just as, uh, just as uh, impressive as, as the wheeled version coming off the ground. I think, Bryce, if you landed in a river up in our northern region, you too would be jumping out of the water, but probably because of crocodiles. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to try that out, guys. <laughs> no, pass on that one. It's like worse than Florida. They're bigger and nasty than those alligators, mate. But, uh, mate, a, a couple of questions for you uh, about the, uh, the the Cub Crafters. Sorry, that was was that a Sea Ray just went past? Uh, whatever it was, it had a floating hull, two yeah. wings, and I want it. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're, we're big on floats and, and floating hulls. But, uh, mate, uh, okay, so so with your with your, the Cub Crafters aircraft, the um, what's the duration on it? What kind of tanks have you got in it? How long will that give you? Um, you're running uh, with standard tanks. You're running 95 liters. That'll give you a good uh, two and a half, three hours, about uh, 90 knots. Um, okay. On the way up from Tyab, uh, we were cruising about 90 knots and leaned out 4,000 feet. We were running about 24, 25 liters an hour. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. And one of the things that the the original cub, of course, was uh, famed for was its basic design and uh, very basic layout. Uh, just having a look on the website here at uh, some of the cockpit equipment, can you tell us about the avionics fit out in the aircraft? Yeah, basically, uh, right now, with this airplane that's here at the show, um, it has the executive glass panel. Um, that includes the Dynon D-180, 
Um, you're running the SL40 radio, um, and then uh, you've got the Garmin 696 GPS in it. It just—it's a very impressive uh, panel. The airplane that's uh, uh, here today also is equipped with the TrueTrack autopilot. Um, so it's uh, it's come quite quite a ways from the original uh, Cub. <laughs> if if you want to go ahead and stick uh, just with the the tradition of the Cub, they do have a standard panel, which is basically going to be your compass, your airspeed indicator, oil temp, and oil pressure. Um, Review mirror for the birds <laughs> <laughs> that are going past you. <laughs> it's difficult being overtaken, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I take it that uh, you can still fly it with the door open. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. That's uh, one of the finer points of summertime flying with the, the carbon cab. Yeah, definitely. And uh, so sort of you've got, I guess, if, you've, if you're sitting within the 600 kilo limit and you've got a 400 empty, you, you've got quite a bit of playroom in there for, uh, for loading it up. Um, yeah, it's not too bad. Um, you know, there are options that are available through Cub Crafters uh, for extended baggage um, with a side access door. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, you can, you know, with one pilot and full fuel, um, you know, you're still going to perform, you know, incredibly well. You go and drop the fuel load, throw another passenger in it uh, to meet the legalities of it, and you're always going to have that performance there. Yeah, a lot of haul, and he's, he's watching him throw it. One of the things I noticed thing about the aircraft as well is has really considerable flaps hanging off the back of that wing. I mean, how many degree of flap do you get out of the aeroplane and how far back is that going to allow you to bring the speed? Well, uh, you've got uh, three flap settings uh, in the carbon cab. You've got 15, 35, and 50 degrees. They're called dive brakes. (laughs) (laughs) Barn doors. 15 and 35 are actually, uh, uh, you're going to get a significant amount of lift out of them. Uh, It's very noticeable uh, when you go ahead and you're at uh, 75 uh, miles per hour is what we go on in the States over there. Once you get down into 75, you'll go ahead and pull your first notch in and you're really pushing the stick forward to keep the nose from coming up. Same story with the second notch. At the third notch, it's strictly drag. Um, Really, in all reality, you can get in short and stay stable with two notches of flaps, but when you're really trying to get into that gravel bar or sandbar and drag it in behind the power curve, you go with that third notch and uh, high in the power, nose high in the air. Yeah. <laughs> will the aircraft actually climb with the third state of, uh, stage of flap? It will. Full power. Uh, uh, you can get it to climb. Actually, one of the maneuvers that I like to do, and I did it a couple of times on a demo flight yesterday, I'll go ahead and pull the third notch of flap in and start feeding power into it. The nose comes up in the air, and you start looking at uh, the dyne or the airspeed indicator, and it, you just see it fall down from 35 to 30, 25, 15, and then it just shuts down. When you look <laughs> over to the VSI, you're getting an 800-foot-per-minute climb. So <laughs> it, uh, it, it, it is transitions an impressive little to helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're just hanging there. I mean, okay. So if if you're doing that, you've got it all hanging out, and you're you're just climbing up like that, and the the, the engine by some horrible fluke goes and dies. If you put the stick for it, I guess you're just flying real quick anyhow. You, yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, come, Each uh, carbon cup comes standard with vortex generators right out of the factory. Okay. Um, and they do a great job at uh, keeping the wings just hanging on to the air. Um, so the minute you put a little bit of air over them, that, that authority is going to come right back and that lift is going to come back. Okay. Um, it's a, it's a great, great little deal. I was speaking with one of the representatives over there today, yeah. uh, and he was also uh, detailing the side slip performance of the aircraft. It has a noticeable uh, side slip, uh, I guess, capacity. Yes, yes, absolutely. Unlike Cessna, um, per se, where you've got to um, go ahead and it's unadvisable to slip a Cessna with the, the flaps down yeah. because you, you basically block all the airflow out from your rudder. Not the case with the Cartman Cub. 50 degrees, you can really roll it over and do a, a steep slip and uh, come down quite quickly for, for its lightweight. Um, it will come down and you will be able to put it down where you want to um, after you build the time and experience in the airplane. That's awesome. So what are the, the classic numbers for the aircraft in terms of takeoff and landing? And 
Um, well, the airplane in in the hands of a skilled pilot can be off in a couple of lengths um, of its own, you know, of its own length, obviously, um, and down in about three three lengths. Um, but uh, and then climb out at uh, twenty one to twenty three hundred feet per minute. Um, yeah, I'm seeing uh, a picture of painting an aircraft carrier deck in my backyard, <laughs> <laughs> running my own kind of carrier operations for an afternoon. Call the ball. That's, it, that's interesting, Bryce, because I was going to actually ask you at what market you would be pitching it at in Australia, but I guess uh, on those sort of figures, you could just about be anybody's backyard, just about. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it just does conjure up. I mean, everybody at the moment who's flying, watches the TV, watches things like Alaska bush pilots and stuff like that. Is that the sort of market you'd be pitching at here in Australia? Yes, yes, yeah. um, absolutely. You know, and. The nice thing about the Cub is it's been around for so long, it just has that uh, that lasting memory amongst anybody who flies. You know, it's everybody can easily recognize a Cub. And so you're going to go ahead and get those people who, who uh, you know, have, have seen the Cub, have always kind of had dreams about the Cub from the time they were a little kid, and now that, that um, you know, they're, they're grown-ups and that they want to actually, you know, think about getting into one. Um, Cub Crafters has really upped the safety of the airplane. Yeah. They've upped the performance and dependability of the airplane. And uh, so, I mean, it's just all out evolved into a great little airplane for anybody who just wants to get up and go out and fly all of these positives so many features what's the negative how much is this airplane um getting the airplane over into australia after you you talk through the gst and so on and so forth the airplane sells for uh right around in the neighborhood of 163,000 in the u.s uh base price uh that basically is just your bare bones panel 600 tires a small tail wheel um, the standard 95 liter tanks. Um, by the time you get it here, you're looking at about $190,000. Once you've got all the gear loaded into it. Yes, okay. yes. Turnkey. Once it's over here, about 190. So it's a fairly 000. substantial price tag. But this is let's let's try and make it clear. This is no ordinary LSA airplane. Absolutely not. <laughs> this airplane Absolutely has a real not. pedigree, a real history to it. it and does. Uh, I know firsthand. I've looked over the aircraft. Uh, I haven't flown it. There's a He's so subtle. Yet, but I can tell you the quality inside of the aeroplane and the uh, workmanship and the, the general build presentation is of a very, very high standard. And, and I, I guess really, especially uh, at this year's NatFly, what we're seeing for the first time and been here for the last uh, four events, some in uh, Narromine and now obviously here in Tomorrow. Um, that's probably the number one standout thing that is actually occurring. We're seeing the build quality of these aeroplanes uh, advancing at yes. such a rate. Um, but the Carbon Cub really stands out as a, a high-quality aeroplane, right down to the detail of the fabric work. Absolutely. You know, that's the thing that um, um, you know a lot of people they need to understand is that Cub Crafters um, also holds a production certificate. Um, in the United States to build a, we call it an FAR 23 certified airplane. Yep. Same standard uh, to get a production certificate that Boeing had to, to uh, meet in order to build their airplanes. Now, um, that being said, Cub Crafters didn't lack with, with quality on any way along the route um, when they decided to go light sport. They hold um, each manufacturing process, each part, uh, to stringent quality assurance and inspection procedures and uh, the same exact procedures that's used on the certified top cut. So it really is uh, kind of impressive to walk into their factory and, and see yeah. how they do things and, and you know really get that understanding, a thorough understanding of how much time and, and care that they put into each part. That's well, you amazing. definitely see it. I think in the home building space, uh, for those um, that have attended a nap fly and also gone to the Saturday night dinner, um, the Saturday night dinner, which is held uh, each year, is an opportunity to speak with many of the builders and many of the builders who are being recognised for excellence in what they do. Uh, and they speak about the detail, 
the way that sheets are cut, the way that the rivets are lined in, the way that the fabric work is applied and the, um, uh, the doubling tapes are all neatly and well measured. And it's really the standout of this aeroplane. And I did spend an hour this morning going over it from nose to tail in that everything on this aeroplane has been polished. There is not one area. Even if you take the time to look underneath the cowlings, you'll see... <laughs> All of the metal work on the engine exhaust assembly, everything is presented at a very high standard. So it's a, uh, in my opinion, it's a standout product and the price represents that. Yes, absolutely. You're definitely getting what you pay for with this airplane. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Bryce, uh, where can we find uh, the uh, the website for for this aircraft? Um, you're going to actually, for the, the factory, it's going to be cubcrafters.com, and that will send you to the U.S. website. And then uh, you've got uh, uh, cubaircraftaustralia.com.au for uh, here in country. That's fantastic, mate, and uh, you put on a fantastic display when we were doing our last interview, actually. It did sidetrack us a little, so we <laughs> appreciate that, and we hope to see you up flying in here at NatFly this afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, cool. guys. Thanks, Thanks Bryce. Bryce. Okay, Matthew Maud from Performance Metals. Uh, beautiful day out here in the sun, and uh, we're going to have a quick chat with you about what you do with uh, metal. Oh, perfect. Um, we have a good range of material that we stock in Sydney. Uh, about five minutes from Richmond RAF base. Mostly we cater on the uh, aluminum side of things, so the 2024 T3 sheet, 6061 T3, 6061 T6, sorry. Um, uh, we do a lot of uh, 3003, 5052 tubing, 6061 tubing as well, um, using from anywhere from uh, fuselage to fuel lines, uh, 4130 tubing. Uh, we go anywhere from quarter inch up to four and a half inch. Uh, we've got chromoly sheet and plate ranging from 25 thou through to one inch in chromoly plate. And we do um, chromoly round bar as well from eighth inch right through to eight inch. Uh, we go from uh, a quarter inch in 6061 round bar through to 12 inch in stock. Okay. Is there any metal you don't do? <laughs> um, yeah, your farm gates. We're not a great fan of that stuff. <laughs> so we, um, we're expanding our range all the time. We're doing a lot of um, um, uh, specialty metals on uh, landing gear. So 440s, uh, 4340 stainlesses, uh, 17.4, 15.5 material. Um, but, yeah, it's... Well, it's not available in Australia. We're good at sourcing it. So. Okay. Matthew, you supply obviously through to the end user. So yes. if I'm building an aircraft, I can uh, contact Performance Metals and just order directly? Yeah, we have a lot of people who are doing kit aircraft uh, send us their bill of materials and we sort of nest it for them, tell them what they're looking for and price it all up. We've got a bit of stuff on file on the, the common aircraft kits. Okay. And, um, yeah, if we don't have it, uh, I apologise and I do my best to get it in really quick for you. What? What kind of metal do you find? Uh, you know, what, what, what do you need in an aircraft grade metal? What's what's the best performance, balance, weight, that kind of stuff? Well, a lot of the stuff that uh, is getting pulled off the um, uh, the kits uh, on the requirements is a lot of six oh six one sheet, okay. uh, a little bit of two oh two four clad sheet, and there's a lot of forty one thirty tubing in there as well. Which is you know that's what we like to specialise in: stick to our grassroots and don't expand too far on okay. you know different derivatives, but just stick with metal. On the back of our car, we've got metal as our business, and that's what we do. <laughs> uh, aside from sheets, what about extrusion items and yeah. stuff like that? Yeah, we do extrusion. We've got some streamline, um, being teardrop shape for wing strut stuff. That's in six oh six one T six. That's actually extruded, not a squashed round tube. Yeah. Um, and we also do a lot of commercial and uh, general aviation extrusions in grades from two oh two four. 6061, 7075 um, and as I said if we don't have it on the floor uh, right now we can air freight it in in a couple of days from the States without a problem. 
Now Matthew, I, uh, I've had a little bit to do with ordering medals through your company and one of the favourite things that I used to look forward to is uh, when the sheet stock would arrive, so would the chupper chups. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just something different. Yeah, it's just an idea that I had when we first started the company. It's just when people move from company to company, they always remember the place where they got the chupper chups from. That's, so, well, uh, it worked with me. I can remember raiding them uh, from the purchasing desk every time they would arrive, thinking they're mine. <laughs> we supply to a number of V8 supercar teams, and the mechanics now run out when the truck turns up to pull the tubing off the trucks, and the great the purchasing guys are thinking, this is great, and they find out that the ends have been ratted out, and they've knocked off all the chopper chops and the tubes lying on the ground, so <laughs> uh, just something different. No, that's awesome. Yeah. As- aside from your home-building market as well, you supply materials through to the Warbird builders as well. Yeah, yeah, we do a bit um, uh, to restoration side of things. We're doing um, uh, jobs currently on the F-35, the Giant Strike Fighter that's being built at the moment, so it goes right up to the other end of the scale. So it's, um, yeah. Who who would have thought uh, supplying metals could be boring? No, not at all. Not at all. Still got a smile on my face, that's the main thing. Well, that's some intense (laughs) stuff if you're doing some struts for a little, you know, bug smasher, as people call them, all the way up to a full-blown joint strike fighter. Yeah, yeah, it's um, quite interesting what you end up uh, doing. Uh, We do a lot of titanium as well. And, um, yeah, that's pretty specialised, high-dollar value stuff. So, oh, yeah. But it's good, very good. Cool. Now, Matthew, if someone wants to get in contact with you, you obviously have a website. Yeah, we've got our website, which is uh, performancemedalsaustralia, no abbreviations.com.au, or go to the aviationadvertiser.com.au and uh, you'll see a link straight to our website. OK, fantastic. Cool. Matt, thanks very much for coming on the show. No worries, thank you. This is probably R600 wing uh, this is running the Rotax 914 turbo in. Produces 115 horsepower at uh, 5,800 takeoff. We're going to be at 105 as fast as you say it, you're off the ground. Very short takeoff roll, very impressive. So we uh, climb away here at about 70 knots, we spin her on the horizon, or maybe just a bit above. 75 knots, we're doing 80, 800, nearly 900. We can get a 1,040 minute takeoff there for that. One thing I noticed with this type of engine is the, uh, the higher RPM, you wouldn't expect to see this sort of uh, RPM in a uh, you know more conventional uh, you know, 172 or something like that. No, that's right. The, uh, the engines that we run in these, the Rotaxes, are uh, they're a high revving uh, four-cylinder, horizontally opposed with a turbocharger on them. Um, this is a very, very special one with a turbocharger. Normally they only run the 912S, uh, non-turbocharged, naturally aspirated. Uh, but we just gone for the extra, we needed the extra power for, uh, for, the, for the extra weight that we got on board. And for like two big folks like us, we have no troubles getting off the ground. So now we uh, flick the propeller to, to climb because it's got a constant speed drop in it, electronically controlled. Knocks the uh, RPM down a few hundred RPM to 5,500. We're still at uh, 35 inches of manifold pressure, so we're still at that three or four pound boost. Then we'll knock the uh, the throttle back now. We'll just we'll be on a climb cruise. We're still 400 feet a minute, 600 feet a minute at 80 knots. Uh, we're just flying out here. Hands are off the controls. Skip balls in the centre. Um, and away we go, just climbing out here at 75 knots. Level off here in a minute and uh, have a look around. And now watching your control input here on the stick here, it's uh, just very minor control. It's obviously quite light on the controls. Very light, very easy, responsive, very direct. Got electric trim on the uh, on the stick as well, so 
just trim it out there. So we'll, we'll put this across the cruise now and the RPM will drop again, down to 5,000 RPM. Checking our uh, pressures and temperatures stable. We'll have a look around outside. So now we're in the cruise. We bring the uh, manifold pressure to 31 inches, just above atmospheric pressure. So we've got a bit of manifold pressure there to uh, help the engine produce a bit of power. So we bring that up there and we'll trim her out. We should uh, hopefully get about 100, 105 knots. Now you're using the electronic uh, controls here to vary the, uh, the constant speed prop. Do you have the option to uh, switch to a manual mode? Yeah, we've got on, on the uh, constant speed prop as well, there's a, there's a manual mode that you can flick to manual and, and then you can find adjust it. Uh, you can coarsen the propeller up a little bit to see if you can um, get a bit more cruise speed out of it or you can find it up to get a bit more bit more torque and a bit more uh, torque out of the engine but we, uh, we normally run it just on automatic and it just sets it up to what you want. It's obviously designed to get the most efficient use of the engine. That's right at 5031 inches you're running the engine at the optimum there uh, that's 75 percent power. Traffic advisory monitor. And you're uh, burning it's it burns about 25 litres an hour at that at that RPM and manifold pressure you could uh, bring it easily bring it back to below 29 inches, where 29 inches is atmospheric pressure and, and you could drop the um, fuel, fuel, fuel flow a lot. So at the moment we just, we're just uh, here at about 1000 feet above the ground, 1200 feet about the ground and the, the, it's very smooth up here, the controls are very light and easy and sensitive. We've got full autopilot um, capabilities in the aircraft, we press the autopilot button and check the mode. We, we actually go into it in, uh, into the uh, map. Advisory. We find out where the nearest uh, aerodrome is, and it's tomorrow, obviously, because that's where we've taken off from. And we press direct two, and then it draws a, a nice pink line for us to go back to into uh, tomorrow. So if we want to turn the autopilot on, we just uh, hit the autopilot button, check the mode, put it on the nav, and press the button on the stick on the right-hand side. It'll automatically turn the autopilot on. All three axis. Well, just two axis. Um, we've got pick and roll, so it'll it's banking up around now at, uh, at a rate one turn to the left, back to head, we'll head us towards the uh, tomorrow township and over to the airport, um, holding it at this altitude that we're at, which is 1500 feet above sea level. Now we're pulling a uh, reasonably steep turn here. What's uh, what's the sort of rate at for steep turns? That's about a oh no, it's probably getting 6, 40, 50 degree turn. We can really lay it over if we want. We can we can lay it right over to the left here and we're doing 80, 90 knots and lay it right over nearly 90 degrees and just pull it around and at the moment we're pulling about, oh, not very much, 0.6 of a G as we go around here at 75 knots. Makes it a very, very nice aeroplane to be able to see the ground and uh, what, what's underneath you. If you're taking this thing cross country and you're up in the cruise, what would you be sort of expecting to test out at in one of those? Well, we, uh, we can go up to 10,000 feet, so in this we haven't uh, actually tried that yet. With the uh, constant speed prop and the and the, and the uh, boost that we've got, we should be able to taz out, I'm thinking, uh, about 120 knots at that height. So it's it's good for a, a good cruiser. I took this aircraft up to uh, Brisbane one day. We left at 6 o'clock in the morning. We're at Brisbane at oh, just, just before lunch, I suppose. We stopped at Moree on the way and filled up full of fuel. Very nice. We're in Brisbane and back back at back in Kiara uh, by late afternoon. You mind if I have a uh, shot at the stick? Yeah, no worries, mate. You take over. My aircraft? Your aircraft. It's actually kind of odd flying with a stick because being a, a Cessna driver, we're used to having a yoke. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, A lot of people don't like the stick, but you get used to it after a time. 
the, uh, the the new high wing that we've got, uh, got a it's got a different arrangement for the stick, but more like a joystick than anything. Now I notice here now I was talking to you about uh, how it appeared that you're putting control inputs in, but this is very soft on the field, very responsive. Yes, that's uh, because of our. Uh, the design in the layout of the uh, control system, we've got all push rods, all aluminium push rods, all on uh, rod ends, all through the, all the way through from the the stick right out to the aileron. So it makes a very, 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 very smooth operation of the ailerons as well as the elevator. Um, the elevator's balanced. I'm just uh, trimming it up a bit just to give it a bit of a feel. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's all right. You got the trim there on the stick. Yep. We uh, we've got uh, we can have the option to have the electric trim on the stick, or we can we normally have it in the centre console, so it makes it for ease of operation. When you're coming in to land, you've got your hand on your throttle, you, you, you dump a little bit of flap out, you put 10 degrees of flap, you can trim the aircraft out in the centre console with the trim, um, then, then put your hand back onto the controls. You know what I notice actually here too, Dan, is when I'm putting in some, uh, some, some aileron, I don't need to put a lot of backstick in it. No, that's right, it's just a well-balanced aircraft. It's beautiful. Yep, and uh, you'll notice that there's not very much adverse yaw as well when we when we roll to the side. We've, we've got that, we've set that up through the control system as well, so we don't have as much adverse yaw and you don't use as much rudder. Yeah, it's my natural inclination is to, to give it some, some rudder input when I'm putting the turn in. That's right. And I'm finding here that I'm actually overcompensating. That's correct. Yeah, I'm just trying to feel out some, you know, should I put too much control input in, but you really don't need that much. No, that's right, like if you put it into a nice co coordinated turn there and let go of the stick, and if the, trim, the aircraft's trimmed correctly, like you let go of the stick and it'll just hold that turn, coordinated turn right around until you uh, want to roll out of it. We might go up there and do a bit of a couple of stalls, eh? I'll talk you through a few stalls. Yeah, right. So we're at 2,000 feet now above the ground. We'll level off here. We'll uh, pull the power back to uh, just slowly. So to do a, do a stall, we, we come back, we hold the stick back slowly. Not that, not as much as that. When we come back at one knot a second, so it's 66 knots. We'll keep the ball in the middle. We've got 63 knots. We've got 62 knots. We've got 61 knots. We've got keeping the wings level. We've got 68 knots. We've got six, uh, 50s. No, we're in the 50s. We're slow. 55, 54, 53, 52, 51, 50. Keep it back. Hold the stick back. Just hold it there. Not too much. Just keep that ball in the middle and the wings level. Keep holding the stick back and, and we're just feeling the buffer now. There it is. Yeah, yeah that's it. Now we unload the aircraft. So that's <laughs> even noticeable. No, that's right. That's 48 knots. For the pair of us, we're a couple of big blokes. Yeah. So we'll, uh, we'll, we've unloaded the aircraft. We've built up speed again. Well, we've got about 65 knots on. We'll dump a bit of flap out here. So uh, our landing configuration, we'll do another one knot a second. Pull the stick back, holding the ball in the middle and the, and the wings level. We'll keep it there, holding it back. We'll pull the power off slowly. Keeping pulling the stick back, holding the stick back, holding the stick back, keeping the, the ball in the middle. We keep holding it back, keep the ball in the middle. No. Hold it back, there we go, there it is there. So I bet... Right on the buffet there. Yeah, right on the buffet there, 46 knots. With 10 degrees of flap out. You can hardly even feel it though. You can hardly feel it. It doesn't, it doesn't drop a wing at all, it doesn't do anything out of the blue. You can, if you, as long as you keep that ball in the middle and the wing's level, and uh, you, you're not going to uh, cause any problems to yourself. We've just joined on the base here, left base runway 23 here at Tomorrow. And tomorrow we're going to do a low level. Runway 23 departure to the south. Low level for here, so we'll uh, make a call now. Tomorrow traffic, Bumby 7322. That's a left, low level, final runway 23 for full stop. So we uh, turn around here to the left, we, we slow the aircraft up, turn it back to takeoff, put the fuel pump on, have a look around, make sure no one's about. 80 knots, once we hit 80 knots, we, we can dump, dump about 10 degrees of flap out. We trip the aircraft, we'll just line it up here on the runway. 
As we come in, make approach at about 75 knots. Just bring the aircraft in. Line it up with the center of the runway. Alert, obtain visual contact. Few little bumps here today. Yeah. Nothing that you can't handle. Rides them well. Rides them easy. So we got about 15 degrees of flap out. We uh, just come over here at the road. Still on about 75 knots. We'll just slow the aircraft up a little bit. Check, make sure no one's on the runway. Slow the plane up. At 70 knots. Get close to the runway. We just start to round out now. We're getting about 65 knots. Going quite slow here now. We could we could pull this up quite fast if we wished. Just wait for it to settle onto the ground like that. Beautiful. Lovely. As we pull up runway 23 here tomorrow, Dan, it's been a wonderful flight. I really appreciate it, mate. No worries at all. Thanks very much. No worries. John Conti from Aeroshoot, welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. Thank you. Mate, these are some amazing looking powered parachutes, side-by-side -side seating, bit of a cage, and a dirty great fan on the back. Yes, it certainly is, and a lot of fun to fly. Yeah, I've been looking pretty good out there. I was uh, thinking if I had time, I'd love to come by and uh, talk to you about a fly. They look yeah, great fun. Yeah, for sure. No, they're, they're excellent fun, and the, the beauty of them is the safety side, having a parachute open yeah. before you leave the ground. And with the chute, you can't stall it, can't spin it, and can't collapse it. So it's um, pretty well foolproof, but yep. not idiot-proof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, never say idiot-proof, because no. the universe keeps making better idiots, right? That's right, exactly. <laughs> so, And they, they travel around 60 to 70 kilometres an hour. Okay. Um, with one person, you've got about two-hour range of fuel. Yep. Two people, about an hour and a half. So what kind of training do you have to go through? Uh, we're, we're under the RAA rules and regulations, so okay. it's the same licensing for those. It's 20 hours minimum time for flying. Okay. If you've got a, um, a licence already, it's just five-hour conversion. And normally, if you haven't flown, you solo around three to five hours, it takes you. And then in that, the rest of that 15 hours, you're doing dual and solo flying. Yeah. Sort of doing cross-countries, endurance. Yeah, and then doing uh, about three or four classroom lessons, you, you learn the rules of the air and weather and clouds and things like that as well, yeah. So where are you allowed to fly these? Um, pretty much anywhere, as long as you're not in restricted airspace. Um, the, the rules are your minimum height is 500 feet and your maximum height is 5,000 feet if you're not on radio. If you're on radio, you can go above that. Yep. So we don't fly from airports or, or runways. We just take off from cow paddocks. Okay. Um, so we, we only need 15 metres takeoff distance with one person and around the 30 to 40 metres with two people. So we, we just take off from grass areas. Okay. How do you get it off? Because, you, okay, you've obviously got the big fan pushing you along, but what do you do? How, do you just throw the parachute up as you get to speed? or No, no. <laughs> you, you actually lay the chute out on the ground. We take off into the wind and mm -hmm. land into the wind at all times. So you just lay the chute out behind you in a short horseshoe shape and once the chute's laid out you start the engine the backwash the propeller fills the chute up with air lifts it up above you once that's uh, um, above the machine you put it put power on and up you go okay and is it weight shift uh, no it's not we we steer just with our hands left and right um, we've got the same controls as a parachute so you pull down left you turn left the more you pull the tighter your turn becomes when you want to straighten up you let go we're a pendulum, so we always come back to the middle of the, the canopy. Okay, so it's very much like a uh, like the, sh the toggles. Exactly, the, the, so yeah. it's very similar to flying just a normal jumping parachute. Um, the, the advantage we've got is we can go up and down as well. We, very happy, yeah, just put down. power on and you go up. You go up, power off, you come down. So, so where's your throttle if you've got a foot? The throttle's problem? at the front, So you, uh. you, and we've got either pilot or passenger can actually have the throttle. It's a bar going across the front, and we've got two sets of toggles set up, so that as we're training, we've got two lots of toggles, so we can override them if we need to override them as well. Very handy. It is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're just operating out of paddocks. You're generally staying in GE airspace. Do you have to have a transponder if you're coming anywhere near an airstrip? No, we, we can't fly in the GA airstrip airspace. Oh, okay. um, we're only in the ultralight areas, right. so a lot of our guys are on VHF radio as well, so they can hear what's coming mm -hmm. in. We can 
land and take off from some airports and things like that okay. as well. So, yeah. So where we fly in Melbourne, we do all our training. It's Werribee. Um, we're close to Avalon, so we're sort of just on the skirts of, of the restriction of Avalon okay. there, yeah. Yeah, I've seen a few of them out in the valley as well. Yeah, Yarra Valley. About how much does one of these rigs cost? Uh, there's two models. One is uh, an aeroshoot Jewel, which is just under 20000 and the other model is uh, an aeroshoot Hummer Shoot, which is just under 26000 uh, The difference being the aeroshoot Jewel has a 503 Rotax motor, which is a 52 horsepower, and the Hummer Shoot has a 582, which is a 65 horsepower motor. Nice. So, yeah, that little bit extra power to get up the extra weight. Yep. So one, okay. the Aeroshoot Jewel takes up 200 kilos of body weight and the Hummer Shoot takes up 250 kilos. Weight. I think I'd need the Hummer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you've made the investment. Um, I guess you need a bit of a trailer or a flatbed to carry this one around. Yeah, they only weigh uh, 100 kilos and 116 kilos, so they're not a heavy machine. So mm. on a 6x4 trailer, they will fit on. You just have to modify the trailer a little bit to suit the frame. Um, most guys have an enclosed trailer, so they can put all their flying suits, helmets, Cans, everything, everything in there, in there, hook on and off you go, yeah. Understood. So, yeah, you're looking at about $1,500 for an open trailer and yep. from about 4000 upwards, depending on your, um, your enclosed trailer. Okay. And about, so you're talking 20 hours to learn to fly it. How much are you paying in general for a course? Um, you're looking at 3500 for your, your full licence, and that's all your, your fuel, your school lessons, um, the 20 hours of flying time to, to get your licence, yeah. Okay. Cool. Anything else you'd like to say about shoots? Um, no, just... We, we think we've got the, the safest aircraft in the world, having the parachute already open, 22 <laughs> years of, of building, zero deaths. So, uh, it's a pretty good stat. It, it's great, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Appreciate no problem your time. at all. Thanks a lot. Gary Sargent with EQ1, the wireless headset. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Cool. Now, uh, okay, what exactly is EQ1? EQ1 is the world's first wireless headset solution for aviation aircraft. Uh, it incorporates uh, a lot of design expertise I gained from the military, to make a very stable, high-performance uh, wireless system to operate in any aircraft. Uh, this year at Natfly, we're releasing the uh, EQ Link, which is the first time a small little control box can just replace your headset wires uh, very easily by just plugging into your standard aviation GA plugs and, hey presto, your wireless with uh, high-performance active noise-cancelling headsets and also with uh, voice synthesis built in. So the little lady inside the headsets will tell you how many battery hours you've got remaining in your product, which is, of course, in rechargeable and away you go so no more having a guess that when your batteries are going flat she'll tell you everything that's going on in your ears in plain English or languages of your choice <laughs> excellent so there you go Gary, how long have you been doing this? How long has it taken you to bring EQ1 to market? EQ1's a culmination of many inventions to get the product uh, to the Australian market and the world market. Um, we've been selling these for about four years and the Link system has just come on the market in the last six months. The Link is the big breakthrough to make it very easy to install in aircraft. Before that, we used to have to install a little base station in the aircraft. So now the Link system is uh, very, very easy install. I can see here just behind you at your trade stand there's quite a number of people gathered around your demonstration equipment. Uh, what exactly are the people looking at and can maybe run our readers through that? Well, because we're, we're in the business of selling headsets, our headsets can also operate without the aircraft intercom. So you can simply put two headsets on your head and speak in a very high noise environment. Uh, we were actually before, demonstrating them before in front of a jet engine, uh, which is just over here to our left, and that's showing everyone that you can just wear them and have a normal con conversation. Uh, the actual operators at 
the jet engine were wearing them on the last test and they were only one metre away from the jet talking no problems at all. So possibly so, not only good for uh, pilots and crew but maybe ground crew as well stationed around the aircraft. Absolutely, we're looking at getting to all sorts of very high extreme noise markets. These were originally uh, designed for open cockpit uh, high noise aircraft travelling up to around 80 knots and since then they've been refined uh, to even higher performance uh, as well as the uh, active noise reduction in each ear. We're the first manufacturer to put active mic reduction or clean cockpit as we call it so that when your mic goes live uh, with our little digital signal processor can reduce the noise in that, that part of your system uh, that no other manufacturer is attacking at this point in time. Now, are you setting these up so that they've got their own, you can change bands on them so if you've got two aircraft with EQ1 systems on board they're not going to clash as they're standing on the ramp? Or? They're a military radio and they have uh, many many channels and they're a frequency hopping radio so they automatically do not interfere with each other. Nice. Uh, you can have up to 80 uh, headsets in the one physical location that's within 10 metres with the zero interference problem. That's excellent and uh, no chance of people snooping as well? No because they're a full digital system they've got a very high military grade security on them so the information that's actually in the airwaves is digital uh, similar to when you log on to your bank and use uh, secure bank transactions so it's not interpretable and it just means nothing and because the range is limited you're not going to get an eavesdropper anyway. So EQ1 sounds definitely like it has all the features the real question is how much what's uh, what's the hit? We're exactly the same prices of what a, a top quality A&R headset would cost you at the end of the day. So compared with that, we're around the same performance except we're wireless. So at the end of the day, you're looking at around $1,500 and we're currently aiming to reduce that price as time goes on and we manufacture more units. So that's $1,500 for the headset and, and the system, everything you need to get you going in an aircraft. Okay, and that, plug, that just plugs straight into those? Straight into the sockets on your aircraft. Where do customers go to find out more information? They can easily the find us on the web, like everyone else, we're webinar everywhere www.skysportsinnovations.com.au or you can google wireless headsets because we're the only ones for aircraft <laughs> so if i wanted to kit out say a two-place standard uh, light sport aircraft with the the 1500 gets you one headset and one station or is it that's correct 1500 is one headset solution so if you want two you have two okay so, so two times 1500 okay we have uh, cheaper options for people that wish to do a physical install rather than a removable install and there's a little base box you might see behind me that does that. Uh, for more information on that, consult online or could give us a call. Excellent. What telephone number should they call you on? If people would like to call us, they can call Gordon on 0419 942 645 and that'll get direct to the man who can do all the work for us. A, uh, a fantastic wireless head solution, something all aircraft owners and pilots should have. Check it out, EQ1. The only one in the world and an Australian invention. Well, there we go, folks. What a busy time we've had here. And, uh, Baz, now you've been here, uh, you know, promoting your product, Oz Runways. How's that been going for you? You're looking uh, very happy as we're standing here at the end of the day. Yeah, it's been fantastic. I mean, we haven't really spoken much about it on the show yet, but I, I do make Oz Runways together with my partners, uh, Neil and uh, Rowan. And uh, kind of at the last minute, Michael Coates from Xair uh, said to us, well, why don't you come and join us at our stand so you got somewhere to uh, to display your wares and come, come do demos. So we did that last minute, and... Uh, mailed all our users so uh, they, they knew we were coming and really we've been demoing version 2.0 which is going to be fantastic, uh, Move full moving maps, actual aviation maps uh, full navigation in there, submit flight plans, do weather, so everyone's been really excited about seeing it and I don't think there's there's been anyone at the stand who hasn't said, I'm getting an iPad after, uh, after seeing the demos yeah. and so we're really excited about getting it out there in the next two months 
and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, people will be flying with it real soon. And I should tell people that uh, I was actually down at the tent where Baz was operating out of uh, yesterday afternoon showing a bunch of uh, gentlemen who uh, perhaps were in an age group that weren't, you know, doesn't lend themselves to a higher technology, but uh, you had them captivated, mate, and I think you uh, you really impressed them with the way you uh, put it to them. So. Well, that's the nice thing about, you know, the technology is that uh, where people used to do this on taking Windows laptops and things in their planes, uh, you know, trying to source software from here, there and everywhere. It's not for everyone. And we're now getting to the point, look at ForeFlight in the US and Oz Runways here, which are pretty much going to be doing the same thing. You download the app, it's there, it's no harder to use, it's easier to use probably than any of the, the fixed GPSs you find in your aircraft because it's a, you know, it's a bigger screen and easier interface and uh, it's really going to change the way we navigate in the next few years. Absolutely. Absolutely, and of course, uh, you, you you being an Apple fan, you and Ben will no doubt get along very, very well since you're both uh, oh, yes. Big Mac heads. Yeah, Big Mac boys, there you go. And Ben, tell you tell us what a, what a suffrage and task it's been this week watching Grant and I struggle with our Windows machines. Oh, okay, well. next subject. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know, I haven't been struggling with my tablet, my Android. I, I um, probably was, you know, I think I should acknowledge that it was in fact... The PC that saved the day. Correct. The PC weekend. from PCDU. Yeah. Yeah. The <laughs> Macs unfortunately let us down. <laughs> oh no! Oh, don't put that on the Apple Mac podcast. That could but be to, an added point, but it won't be. <laughs> but to uh, to come back to the Android tablets, I mean that's a perfect size. So yeah. we'll be working next uh, after we release uh, Oz Runways 2.0 with all the moving maps. Uh, we'll be looking at uh, we'll be looking at getting. Um, you know, the version on the Android because uh, you know the, the slightly smaller size you got the 7 inch tablets are perfect for in the cockpit or mounting mm-hmm. in especially if you want to mount it in a panel and uh, so that's where it's going and plus they're nowadays they're cheap enough to just say I'm going to spend the 300 bucks just because I can have it in my airplane and uh, you know we see it as a big market there over well, the next few well years. It works well in my car I tell you it's, it looks great that little tablet uh, like trying to stick it on the front in front of all the old stereo gear that I just don't use anymore and uh, yeah it looks good in the old RX-7 absolutely well I tell you what um, I was talking at the opening about uh, the, the level of technology and how nice these planes are and uh, you would have heard that cockpit audio from when I was up there in the Brumby low wing what a magnificent airplane and the thing that struck me about flying that aircraft was how little con- uh, how little control input you had to put in just to make that aircraft manoeuvre around the sky it was amazing a really soft touch uh, on the stick actually the first time I've flown a plane that doesn't have a yoke in it so it was a real, a real learning curve for me so, uh, my world. Yeah, no, it was fantastic. So I'm, I'm really impressed, and I think I'm going to have to go out and do my uh, RAOS uh, conversion now. I'm pretty sure of that. I think you have to. hope my wife's not listening to this. It'll be real easy. Really, you know, you, you have been flying, and it'll come back to you real quick. And find a suitable airplane, and, you know, as an experienced GA pilot, you, you really got to do five hours. And I don't see, unless you, you, you know, you can't really... You find an airplane that's not really suitable for you, and you're having trouble struggling... That, that uh, for that reason but you know find something like the Bromby a good aircraft five hours you'll be current and uh, you'll be you know jo- flying uh, RA yeah we might fly up here tomorrow the next time we come up here that would be handy <laughs> make life a lot easier oh yeah well Grant uh, you talked a little bit before at the start there about your flight in the gyrocopter so uh, <laughs> you're, yeah. uh, it's, it's taken all day to get the grin off your face so uh, it's still it's here it's going to take days to get that grin off my face mate it's like a motorbike in the air absolutely brilliant Italian made gyrocopter uh yeah, Sam took me out. You would have heard the interview with him earlier. Uh, yeah, I turned up to say hi to him and get his business card early this morning. It was still, like, cold and everything on the ground. He said, come on, let's go for a fly, and who am I to turn down and offer to get altitude? So, uh, yeah, I uh, I jumped in. We uh, I had my vest done up. I had a jacket of his. I had uh, these 
fingerless gloves that you can pull a piece over and make into mittens and the helmet with a little rubber piece underneath the chin so that air didn't come up and around and get in the way of the microphone and it was absolutely awesome. Oh, speaking of the Brumbies, there goes formation departure, so to speak. Three Brumbies departing the field. It's going over now. Lovely, beautiful. All that horsepower. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, where's my sand effects ring of them? <laughs> yeah, mate. Maybe not quite the same as a pair of P P40s and a P51 going over, but you know, that you normally hear here tomorrow. <laughs> but you know what? Most of these have uh, you know, almost half the horsepower of a 172 and they're going faster. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, that was the good thing with the gyrocopter was uh, just sitting there hovering, man. It was, we got some relative, uh, you know, we still had a bit of airflow and we were in a, effectively in a stall and descending at about 600 foot a minute. Pretty much zero forward motion. Absolutely brilliant. Just coming down, looking at everything and then, uh, you know, put a bit of load back in and put some power in and away we went and did a couple of gentle stall turns and I got to have some have a go of it and my introduction to gyrocopters and I loved it. I would Betty, definitely uh, one Betty Crocker would be proud. They finally made an egg beater fly. <laughs> <laughs> No, mate, it's absolutely awesome. I loved it. it absolutely. Well, we probably should wrap up the show there, folks. Uh, Grant and I are going to hop in the PCDU wagon and uh, make the five or 600k trek back to Melbourne. Ben, you're heading back to Sydney? Back to Sydney. Well, uh, half, half the distance and I'm probably half as sore by the time I get there. <laughs> well, once again, mate, you've uh, spoiled us this weekend and helped us out and support us. We really appreciate your support as always. It's been a great weekend. Mate, uh, I, I couldn't honestly uh, have more fun, you know, surrounded by uh, fun people, uh, here on this uh, amazing airfield tomorrow, such a historic site. Actually, I'm getting just a little bit uh, uh, nostalgic with the sun just going down, getting that lovely reflection and a beautiful lineup of aircraft. Uh, you know, how much more fun can a person have with their pants on? <laughs> Absolutely. That's, that's a good way to sum up. <laughs> the only way to be, be, be better is to actually be in the air flying or to be sitting here with a beer. That's it. There you go. Now, Baz, you're hopping in the sporty uh, tomorrow morning, yeah, heading back tomorrow to Adelaide. Morning. One more night here in uh, the Tomorrow Hope Motel. Uh, back in the sporty, uh, probably go to Mildura for some more go-go juice, and uh, back to uh, Gawler, where I've got my uh, airplane right now. Yep. And uh, back to see the, the wife and kids. Absolutely, and uh, you'll be uh, there at the upcoming Barossa Air Show that we plugged on our last That's show. correct. That's only, uh, only just over a week away now. Yep. Uh, which is going to be fantastic. It's, it's always got a fantastic lineup of pilots, and uh, the same this year. And uh, hopefully the weather's good and it'll be a really good day. And love to talk to some uh, interesting people. Well, we wish you a safe trip back. Well, that just about wraps it up here from tomorrow and NatFly 2011. Thanks very much for listening. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back soon with another episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. But until then, just remember this: it's what's down under that counts. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website www.playingcrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with. 
although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Thanks, folks.